Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax and enjoy the show. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks written by Al Lewis. Well, the baseball season is rapidly getting underway and Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, is full of enthusiasm for our national pastime. Yes, I am enthusiastic about the national pastime. Largely, I must admit, because of the enthusiasm for the game felt by one Philip Goynton, my national pastime. <laughs> Last Thursday morning at breakfast, my landlady asked me, how come? How come this sudden interest in baseball, Connie? Seems to me you never cared about the game very much. Oh, you're wrong, Mrs. Davis. I always had a deep-rooted love for the game. It just took someone to bring it out. Mr. Boynton. It wasn't Ty Cobb. <laughs> the way I look at it, baseball will eventually further our romance. How do you mean, Connie? Well, I figure if he spends enough time looking at curves and watching fellows trying to get to first base, it might give him an idea. <laughs> He's a backward sort, all right. Not about baseball. Tomorrow's the opening game, Mrs. Davis, with Clay City High, and already Mr. Boynton's invited me to go with him. Now, of course, my troubles just begin. I've got to have a nice sport outfit to wear to the game. What's wrong with the outfit you've got? Mr. Boynton's seen me wearing it three times already. Three times? Ye yes, to the opening games of 1949, 48, and 47. <laughs> I made up my mind that this year, when they throw out the first ball, I'm throwing out that dress. <laughs> oh, if only I wasn't so broke Let me think a minute If there was somebody who could lend me I'm broke too, Connie <laughs> If there was somebody else who could No, I guess borrowing isn't the answer Wait a minute, Connie I was talking to Mr. Fisher yesterday He's the nice man who runs the pawn shop on 4th Street I know, we've met several times <laughs> Well, I just happened to drop in yesterday to see that my brother Victor's cigarette case was polished. And Mr. Fisher showed me the nicest sport dress. Brand new. He had just picked it up at Sherry's department store at their spring sale. A sport dress? What did he want it for? Waiting on trade? <laughs> it's not for himself, Connie. It was for his daughter. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for you, it didn't fit her. And he couldn't take it back to Sherry's because all sales were final. So? So maybe he'd be willing to let you have it on a swap. But what could I swap him for it? Well, no, I'll need these fillings as I get older. <laughs> I'd be glad to let you take the vacuum cleaner, Connie. Well, that's very generous of you, Mrs. Davis, but wouldn't it make it terribly inconvenient when you wanted to clean the rug? Oh, not at all. I'm pawning the rugs next week. <laughs> but this summer coming and all, it's much cooler in the house without rugs. Besides, I need the money for other things. Now, you just take the Hoover and stop off at Mr. Fisher's on your way to school. I certainly appreciate your kindness, Mrs. Davis, but I sort of hate the idea of having to get anything like this at a pawn shop, I mean. I don't see why you should feel that way, Connie. It's just like any other business, and a lot older than most. 
Take Christopher Columbus, for instance. Without a pawn shop, where would he be today? Same place. <laughs> You're right, Mrs. Davis, though. If Queen Isabella hadn't raised the money on her jewels, Columbus couldn't have discovered America. Exactly. Then where would you be? That's easy. I'd be teaching Indian kids for very little wampum. <laughs> Morning, Mr. Fisher. Well, Miss Brooks, I haven't seen you since you redeemed your locket. Correction. You haven't seen me since I pawned it again. After the holidays, remember? Oh, of course. It was on a Monday in January. I recall it because I took in six pairs of binoculars that day. The better to see my locket with, my dear. But what I'm here about this morning is a slight business deal. You see, Mrs. Davis suggested that you might be interested in this vacuum cleaner. Well, Mrs. Davis is an old friend, but frankly, we don't have too much of a call for vacuum cleaners. Oh, I don't want any money on it. I just want to swap. You'll find plenty of use for the vacuum cleaner, too, because Mrs. Davis is about to put her rugs in your protective custody for the summer. Again? (laughs) Well, then I guess I could use the vacuum at that. Well, let's see now. What could I give you in return? Oh, here's something that might come in handy. It's for dressing and undressing, a genuine Chinese screen. Well, actually, we have very few Chinese getting dressed at our place. What I had in mind, Mr. Fisher, was this blue and gold sport dress over here. Those happen to be our school colors, and, well, I'm going to our opening baseball game tomorrow. I understand, my dear, and you're perfectly welcome to the dress. Oh, that's very nice of you, Mr. Fisher. Uh, Just one thing, though, Miss Brooks. Are you sure the dress will fit you? Even if it doesn't, I'll look better in it than I would in the vacuum cleaner. Oh, Miss Brooks. Good morning, Miss Brooks. Hello, Harriet. How's the beloved daughter of Madison's beloved principal this morning? Fine, thanks. Are you going past Daddy's office? As fast as possible. (laughs) What can I do for you? Would you mind dropping this letter on his desk? It just arrived. All right, I'll take it in. Thanks. Oh, and I almost forgot. Would you take this loving cup? Just for delivering a letter? (laughs) The baseball trophy Madison won last year. Daddy asked me to pick it up after it was polished. I've got to run now. I want to catch Walter Denton before he invites anyone else to the opening game tomorrow. I know the feeling. See you later, Harriet. Good morning, Mr. Conklin. I've got something for you. That is a matter of opinion. (laughs) Oh, oh, the the trophy. Oh, yes, well, put it on my desk, please. Yes, sir. There. Anything else? Oh, yes, sir. Harriet gave me a letter for you. Now, where in the world did I put it? Let me look in my bag. Oh, it must be in here somewhere. Funny, I can't seem to find it. Miss Brooks, each day the post office department handles hundreds of tons of mail. They carry it on trains and boats and planes over thousands of miles of varying terrain. They go through rain and sleet and snow and dark of night. And you can't be trusted to walk ten yards with one lou- one letter. <laughs> Please, sir, I 
I may have dropped it in the hall. I'll go out and look for it in a minute. Meanwhile, I wish you'd cheer up a bit. Think of the ball game tomorrow and how we're going to whip Clay City High. You picked a perfect subject to elevate my spirits, Miss Brooks. For your information, there will be no game tomorrow. What? But you can't do that to Mrs. Davis's vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I mean, I purposely got a brand new used sport dress for this game. I've been looking forward to it for months. So have I, Miss Brooks. Nothing would please me more than to soundly drub Jason Brill's Clay City Tigers. But the sad fact remains that we can't play them. Why not? Because through some appalling mismanagement of the athletic fund, our team has no uniforms. Who's been handling the athletic fund? Uh, that is beside the point. <laughs> I, guess I went a bit overboard on the basketball appropriation. Oh, this is awful, Mr. Conklin. Baseball is the most popular sport at Madison. How well I know it. That's why I've taken my glasses off, Miss Brooks. They steam up when I gaze at this statue near my desk. The bust of the man for whom we've named our athletic stadium. The one person responsible for inaugurating baseball at Madison. Our beloved founder, Yoda Critch. I know you feel badly, sir. A lump comes into my throat when I think of how he would take this catastrophe. And when I hold this loving cup in my two hands... Uh, Mr. Conklin. Yes, Miss Brooks. Would you mind letting go of my ears? <laughs> oh. oh, I'm sorry. I better put my glasses back on. <laughs> Look, Mr. Conklin, isn't there something we could do to make the game possible? I'm afraid not, Miss Brooks, unless we... Oh, wait a minute. Do you think our boys could play good ball without uniforms? I don't know how good they'd play, but they'd certainly draw a nice crowd. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, will continue in just a moment. But first, here is Vern Smith. No other dentifrice offers proof of such results. Proof that Colgate Dental Cream helps stop tooth decay before it starts. Two years' research at leading universities using Colgate Dental Cream, hundreds of case histories, makes this the most conclusive proof in all dentifrice history on tooth decay. Conclusive proof that when teeth are brushed with Colgate's right after eating, Colgate Dental Cream helps stop tooth decay before it starts. Yes, the toothpaste you use to clean your breath while you clean your teeth now offers a safe, proved way to reduce tooth decay. Modern science shows decay is caused by mouth acids which are at their worst right after eating. Brushing teeth with Colgate's, as directed, helps remove acids before they harm enamel. Colgate Dental Cream has been proved to contain all the necessary ingredients, including an exclusive patented ingredient for effective daily dental care. Get Colgate Dental Cream today. Big economy size, only 59 cents. Always use Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay before it starts. Remember, no other dentifrice offers proof of such results. Well, Mr. Conklin refused to let our team play without the proper equipment, especially against Madison's traditional rival, Clay City High. I was pretty blue about the whole thing, so when lunch period arrived, I headed for Mr. Boynton's biology laboratory, my customary destination when I feel confused or unhappy or 
contented or cheerful or anything. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Boynton. I... Mr. Boynton? Oh, I'm over behind these cages. Just doing a little repair work. Have you heard about the game being called off tomorrow? Yes, and I'm just sick about it. I had my heart set on going to that game tomorrow. So did I. But don't be too depressed. We can still do something else together. Together? Oh, oh, that's right. You were going along to the game with me, weren't you? Obviously, I was indispensable to you. <laughs> but I know what might be fun. We could go to the movies right after school. By four o'clock, we could be sitting in the balcony at the State Theater. Oh, but the State doesn't open until 6.30. That's what I say. It might be fun. <laughs> I don't understand. How could we have fun sitting in a movie for two and a half hours if there's nothing in the <laughs> Mr. Boynton, please do me a favor. The next time we're in the balcony, borrow the usher's flashlight and see how your fellow Americans are living. <laughs> uh, I guess I may seem pretty naive on occasion, Miss Brooks. Oh, I don't know. Sometimes you're quite a man of the world. <laughs> Another world, of course. <laughs> now, suppose we go to lunch. I've got to finish early and drop into the domestic science room. Miss Westville promised to check my new sport dress and see what alterations it needs. Oh, is that what you've got in that box, a dress? Yes. Now, come on, Mr. Boynton, let's go. Well, I'll have to join you a bit later on, Miss Brooks. I've got to finish repairing the locks on these rabbit cages. They're brand new, too. I can't understand how these iron locks were broken. Must have some pretty tough rabbits in there. Now, look at them, will you? Aren't they cute? I keep the female rabbits in one cage and the males in another. You would. <laughs> uh, try and get your work done as soon as possible, huh? I will, Miss Brooks. I'd go with you right now, but it's rather important. You know how rabbit cages are. Of course, you wouldn't want to come back from lunch and find six cages where there were two before. <laughs> Let's see now, where can I sit? Oh, there's Walter Denton. Mind if I join you, Walter? Not at all. Welcome aboard, almost appetizing morsel of Madison's faculty. Thank you, Walter. Well, it's a pleasure, I'm sure. Your apple-cheeked, cherry-lipped countenance is like meat and drink to my beauty-starved senses. Thanks again. Now get your teeth out of my arm and back into your saddle. <laughs> of my greeting to you is not a true barometer of my feelings, Miss Brooks. No, no, we're formally cavorted the blithest of blithe spirits. There now sits a sodden lump of gloom, a veritable clod of a boy. Walter Denton, boy clod. <laughs> but if I may be permitted an observation in your native tongue, what, pray, is the cause of this unseeming cloddery? Oh, it's Harriet Conklin. We had an argument, and now she's not talking to me. Oh? What was the argument about? Well, it started when I heard that Mr. Conklin was calling off tomorrow's ball game. And I said, I couldn't understand how our athletic fund got into such bad shape that we couldn't afford uniforms for the team. Then? Well, then I mentioned Mr. Conklin's administration of the funds in a way that Harriet construed as derogatory. What did you say? 
I said he was a marble-headed dimwit. <laughs> I guess that could be construed as derogatory. <laughs> Look, I know how you feel, Walter. I'm disappointed, too. But after My all... My feelings transcend disappointment, Miss Brooks. They can only be described as abjectly abysmal, cataclysmically morbid, and horrendously depressive. What did you have for lunch today? A thesaurus <laughs> burger? Look, Walter, maybe all hope isn't lost. Oh, pardon me, Miss Brooks, but Mr. Conklin wants to talk to us about the ball game tomorrow. Yes, Miss Brooks, all hope is not lost. Now, you see, Walter, I told you. I knew it! I just knew if there was any possible chance to salvage that contest, Mr. Conklin would be the man to do it. Yes, sir, it isn't every school that can boast of a principal who, even when he's made a few prior mistakes with the athletic fund, can bounce right back Oh, quiet! <laughs> Please sit down with you for a moment, Miss Brooks. Certainly, sir. What's this about the game tomorrow? Do you really think we can hold it? That, my dear, depends upon the cooperation we get. Suffice it to say, I've contacted a sporting goods store in town who offered to rent us all the necessary uniforms and equipment for a paltry $25. Isn't that wonderful? Great. Have you got the paltry $25, Mr. Conklin? Uh, no, no, I haven't. My salary check doesn't come through until next week. However, that is not going to stop I feel now that I'm duty-bound to field a team against Clay City. Duty-bound? Yes, Miss Brooks. Only minutes ago, as I sat fondling our loving cup, symbol of Madison's baseball championship of bygone seasons, I looked up at the statue of our founder, Yoda Critch. And suddenly, <laughs> I seemed to hear his voice say, with a tear in it, I started baseball at Madison Osgood. Keep it going, boy. <laughs> then... Then I heard myself saying, but Yoda, where can I get $25 for uniform? And fantastic as it may sound, Yoda said, go, Osgood, go and get the money from Miss Brooks. <laughs> Are you following me, Miss Brooks? You lost me when Yoda said, go, Osgood. <laughs> It's such a worthy cause, Miss Brooks. If I had the money, I'd hand it over in a minute. So would I if you had the money. <laughs> or if I had it, for that matter. But my check doesn't come through until next week either. But surely you must have a little something salted away. Just salt, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> oh, gosh, Miss Mr. Conklin, I wish I could be helpful, but I just can't. You rarely are. <laughs> I'd have laid out my last $40 for those rabbit cages. I won't get it back from the board for over a month. And I just bought this sport dress with my last vacuum cleaner. <laughs> that is, I got it at a very expensive place, and I feel as if I've been run through a if vacuum cleaner. If we could cleaner. only borrow the money somewhere for just a few days, I'm sure... Wait a minute, could... Mr. Conklin. Did you say borrow? Why, yes. For just a few days? That's right. Sir, you've given me an idea. Yes, I'm almost positive it'll work. Now, just sit still, everyone. I've got a couple of stops to make. Gee, Miss Brooks, you look like you're on your way to a ball. You're close, Walter. I'm on my way to three of them. <laughs> Fisher? I'm at the rear counter, Miss Brooks. Just step this way, please. Certainly. I know you're a busy man, Mr. Fisher, so I'll be brief. What will you give me for this bust of Yodar Critch? 
Well, now, I don't like to seem callous, Miss Brooks, but you'd be surprised how few calls I get for busts of Yodar Kritzstein. <laughs> yes, but I just want the money for a short time. Money? You want money for this? Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Brooks. That would be out of the question. However, I've still got that large Chinese screen here. You could have that in exchange... Oh, excuse me. I think another customer is coming in. I'll get back to you in a minute. Another customer? If you don't mind, Mr. Fisher, I'd rather not be seen in here with this statue. I'll just duck behind the screen until he goes. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I'd like to borrow some money on what I have in this box. And what might that be? It's a blue and gold sport dress. <laughs> you want to pawn a sport dress? Oh, yes, sir. It belongs to uh, 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 my wife. You know, the little woman. Oh, the little woman. Well, I don't usually take in dresses. Unless they're in the family, that is. But uh, do you mind if we discuss this in a moment? Another customer is coming in. Oh, another customer? But I mustn't be seen in here with this dress. I'd better hide behind the screen until he's gone. Uh, don't rush yourself. It'll take him a few minutes to open the door. Generally, they peer into the window outside for quite a while before sidling in. I don't want to take any chances. I'll see you later. Oh, pardon me. I didn't know anyone else was hiding behind... Miss Brooks! Don't stand there, hubby. They kiss the little woman. This is most embarrassing, Miss Brooks. I... Uh, what are you doing with that statue of Yodar Critch? Well, I... Never mind that, Mr. Boynton. What are you doing with my dress? Well, I... Uh, never mind that, Miss Brooks. What are you doing with that statue? <laughs> Quiet, Mr. Boynton. Another customer just came in. Good afternoon, my boy. Can I help you? Yes, sir. I'd like to hock these rabbit cages. <laughs> rabbit cages? Yeah, just for a short period. And then we'll take it off your hands. Rabbits and all. This is an interesting day. The business is booming, too. I see another customer is about to enter. Another customer? Oh, I don't want anybody to see me in here. I gotta hide somewhere. Shh. Room for one more down front. <laughs> Thanks, Miss Brooks. I'll just... Miss Brooks! Get behind the screen, Walter. Oh, you won't tell Mr. Boynton about these cages, will you? I'm sure she won't, Walter. <sighs> Good. I wouldn't want you to find out that I... <laughs> Walter, what are you doing with my rabbit cages? Well, I... Miss Brooks, what are you doing with that statue of Yodar Critch? Never mind that, Walter. What are you doing with Mr. Boynton's rabbit cages? Never mind my rabbit cages, Miss Brooks. What are you doing with that statue? What are you doing with my dress, Mr. Boynton? <laughs> Walter, what are you doing with my rabbit cages? Well, that was fun. Shall we go around again? <laughs> You're out some way. Quiet, Walter. Another customer just came in. Uh, I can see through a crack in this screen. He's coming all the way back to the last counter. And what may I do for you, sir? I, sir, should like to negotiate a loan on this silver loving cup. You mean you want to hock it? Don't be vulgar. $25 would relieve my temporary financial embarrassment, and the cup would be redeemed in a very short time. Well, uh... oh, good heavens, somebody's coming in. I can't be seen in this sort of establishment. I'll just hide behind this screen until he leaves. Oh, oh I'm sorry, boy. Oh, that's okay, Mr. Conklin. I'll move over. Thank you, Walter. 
Now, Miss Brooks, if you will move over a bit so that I can stand between Mr. Boynton and yourself, I'm sure we'll all be... Miss Brooks! <laughs> Mr. Boynton! Walter Denton! This is roll call. You've left out Yodar Critch. <laughs> So I have. Miss Brooks, what are you doing with that statue of Yoda Critch? Well, I... Walter, what are you doing with Mr. Boynton's rabbit cage? Oh, I... Mr. Boynton, what are you doing with Miss Brooks' dress? Yes, Mr. Boynton, what are you doing with my dress? Quiet, quiet. That sort of buck passing will never take my mind off that statue, Miss Brooks. It won't? Well, try this on for size, Mr. Conklin. What are you doing in this pawn shop with the Madison baseball trophy? Ooh. <laughs> That's pretty good. We're all here for the same purpose, to raise the money for the baseball uniform. Sure. Now, if Mr. Fisher will come through, we'll always... Well, my last customer just left. My, isn't it getting a little stuffy for you folks behind that screen? Stuffier than ever, lately. Mr. Fisher, this is a very strange situation, but we're all here after the same $25. Now, you've seen our collateral. Take any or all of it and please give us the money. Of course, my dear, of course. I'll give you $25 on this loving cup alone. Wonderful, Mr. Fisher. Now I won't have to cancel the game tomorrow. And folks, our mutual mortification has not been in vain. Oh, uh, pardon me, sir. There seems to be a letter in this loving cup. A letter? Oh, that must be the one Harriet gave me for you this morning. It probably dropped in the cup while I was holding them both. Uh, no doubt, Miss Brooks. Oh, I left my glasses at the office. Will you read the letter to me, please? Yes, sir. Why, it's from Jason Brill. It says, Dear Mr. Conklin... Due to a shortage in our athletic fund, I am forced to cancel tomorrow's baseball game because my team has no uniform. Eve Arden as our Miss Brooks returns in just a moment, but first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight? Yes, tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a Luster Cream shampoo. Luster Cream, world's finest shampoo. No other shampoo in the world gives you K. Dumit's magic blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Better than a soap, better than a liquid, Luster Cream is a dainty cream shampoo. Leaves hair three ways lovelier. Fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft manageable. Even in hardest water, luster cream lathers instantly. No special rinse needed after a luster cream shampoo. So gentle, luster cream is wonderful even for children's hair. Tonight? Yes, tonight, try luster cream shampoo. Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl, you owe your crowning glory to Luster Cream Shampoo. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, we were all very disappointed by the postponement of the opening baseball game with Clay City. But my chagrin was short-lived because that night I had a date with Mr. Boynton. And soon I heard him saying... Come a little closer, Miss Brooks. All right. How's this? 
closer. Like this? A little closer. Please, Mr. Boynton, if we get any closer to that movie screen, we'll be in the picture. Next week, tune into another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Mustard Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, directed by Al Lewis with the music of Wilbur Hatch under the direction of Maurice Carlton. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, and Frank Nelson. Doctors prove palm olive soap can bring you a lovelier complexion in 14 days. Yes, 36 leading skin specialists prove, in tests on 1,285 different women that palm olive soap facials using nothing but palm olive brought new complexion beauty to two women out of three. Just wash your face three times daily with palm olive soap, each time for 60 seconds, massaging palm olive's beauty lather onto your skin. Then rinse. So start your palm olive facials today. Remember, doctors prove palm olive soap can bring you a lovelier complexion in 14 days. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey. Travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. GraceGrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. Andy, did you hear that? Come on! Did I hear what? That whistle! That's the Rinso White Whistle. And Rinso means us. That's right. Rinso gets clothes Rinso White. And Rinso presents the Amos and Andy Show. A young bride I knew took to cooking just like a shot. Her first lamb stew turned out... Sensational. Her cherry pies were... Mmm, delicious. But more and more, her husband wanted to eat out. Why? We had a pack. I dried the dishes and put them away, but he did the dish washing. Oh, and no rinso? No rinso. We were using a slow-poke bar soap. That is at first. But then you found out about rinso, eh? Mm-hmm. Now we eat home every night. Gosh, the biggest pile of dishes is done in way less time. With Rinso suds in the dishpan. Yes, stubborn pots and greasy pans come shining clean in far less time. Rinso's soapy-rich suds are easy on your hands, too. Try Rinso tomorrow. And now, our stars, Amos and Andy. Whenever Andy and the kingfish go broke, which is most of the time, they manage to place the blame for their failures upon anything but themselves. But when the truth comes out, it's a bitter pill to swallow. 
And that's what they're swallowing right now, because they have asked Amos for an honest opinion of themselves. Fellas, you asked for it, and I'm going to tell you. First of all, both of you are two of the laziest people I know. Look at you, Andy. Right now, you ought to be thinking of a way out of your mess. Instead of that, you just sitting there with your feet up on the desk. Well, that ain't being lazy. I was thinking. I remember once I read in some medicine book that the best way to think is with your feet up in front of you, gazing into space. Uh, that might be the truth, Vanna, but when you got your big feet up there in front of you, there ain't much space left for gazing there. You know? Yeah, well, go ahead, Amos. Tell us what else is wrong with us. Number two is neither one of you has got no backbone. You don't stick to nothing. I bet you that last year you was in 40 different businesses and every one of them went bankrupt. You never sees nothing through to a finish. Well, how much more of a finish can you have than bankrupt? <laughs> uh, well, that ain't what I mean. I mean that neither one of you work hard enough to make a success or nothing. Remember this, fellas. Hard work never kills nobody. Hmm. Yeah, Amos, but sleeping ain't never caused many casualties neither, you know. <laughs> uh, why don't you fellas face it? Both of you is lazy. You don't want to work and you is chiselers. You was always trying to make big money out of some scheme instead of finding out what you was fitted for and working at it. That's my advice and I hope you takes it. So long, bum. Goodbye, Amos. <laughs> Fine friend he is. Accusing us of being lazy, no good chiselers and bums. How can he have the nerve to say them awful lies about us? Even if they is true. <laughs> and uh, I hear to admit it, but I think Amos has got something there about finding what we is fitted for and working at it. Now, uh, what training has we done had? Uh, let's figure. Let's start with school. Uh, did you graduate from college? Well, no. I was going to go to college, but something got in my way. Oh, what was that? High school. <laughs> Seems that they had a rule about first having to go to high school before you could go to college. No. Uh, How about you, Kingfish? Did you graduate from college? Well, tell you the truth, Brother and I had the same trouble you did about having to finish grammar school and high school, so I jumped over college. Uh, jumped over into what? I took a postgraduate course. Oh, well, what did you jump over from? Well, the first time, I jumped all the way over from the fifth grade into the postgraduate. Mm. Then I found out what it was a little tough there, so I jumped right back again, too. That's what I yeah. yeah, I see. So you see, Anna, so far as our training, uh, that ain't fitting us so much, is it? Well, I spent three years in kindergarten. Don't tell me it was all a waste of time. Uh, Brother Anna, I've been thinking. I knows one thing. I knows that I is fitted for being a promoter. Yeah. yeah. Now, the thing for you to do is to concentrate on what you fitted for. Yeah, get you started on the road to success, and then I promote you, you see? Oh, yeah, but that leaves you sitting down with your feet on the desk and me doing all the work. And are you looking that the wrong way? Uh, uh, let's look at it from the abstract. From the what? From the abstract. Now, I know you ain't going to be ignorant enough to ask me what abstract is. Uh, I ain't, huh? Uh, what is abstract? There you go. I knew you was going to be that ignorant. Now, open your ears and listen to me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to explain it to you. Uh, what the abstract is, it's, uh... You got your ears open there now? Yeah, but there ain't nothing coming out your mouth. <laughs> the abstract means... Uh, it means, uh... Well, let's put it another way. Well, you ain't put it no way yet. Yeah, well, uh, let's forget the abstract. Let's look at it from the subjective. From the what? I know it was coming. I know it. I could tell by the expression on your face that that little word throwed you. Yeah, well, explain that last word, will you? 
The word subjective, that's the word. Yeah. Now, you ain't going to ask me what the subjective is, are you? Yes, I is. Uh, let's go back to the abstract. Well, what is abstract? Uh, abstract is, uh... Well, now, let me put it another way. Uh, you was here to abstract the vanilla, ain't you? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, it ain't nothing like that, no. no. Yeah. Well, now we're getting someplace. Why didn't you tell me that in the first place? Yeah, well, it just takes time to explain these uh, things. Wait a minute, wait. Uh, hello, Henry. Come in. Yeah, uh, maybe you can help us here, Henry. Hello, boys. I thought I would drop in for just a chat. I just sold a large insurance policy, and I'm feeling very good. Oh, just sold a big policy, huh? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Henry, would you mind telling me and Andy uh, what you owe your big success to in the insurance business? Why, no, I would be glad to. Mm-hmm. I feel that I can honestly say, with all honesty that my success begun when I met and married the woman I now call Mrs. Van Porter. Hmm, you ain't very familiar with your wife, is you? Kingfish. Don't bust in there. This is reporting. So you feel that you owe your success to your wife, eh, Henry? Yes, I owe it all to my dear, sweet wife. If her disposition hadn't driven me out of the house, I never would have went to work. Uh, Henry, uh, the thing that me and Anna wants to find out uh, the most is why, uh, what made you pick out the insurance business? Well, it all started during a particularly trying period of my married life. Mm-hmm. It seems that my wife, who has never been very strong-willed, had fallen into a rather annoying habit. Well, what was that, Henry? Well, every time that I argued with her, she would break a vase over my head. Yeah, habit like that would get kind of annoying, yeah. And to continue, the repeated blows upon my head was beginning to cause some damage. Mm. Yeah, she must have put some bumps on you, all right. I'll say she put some bumps on me. In fact, it got to the point where I wasn't worried so much about the injuries to my head. I was worried about the injuries to my bumps. Mm. Had bumps on bumps there, huh? Yeah, so... Natural, I came to the conclusion that I would take out some insurance in case my head became disabled. Yeah. So while looking over the various types of insurance, I became so interested that right then and there I decided to make it my life's work. Yeah, so that's how you got into it, huh, Henry? Yes, that's right. Well, thanks for the chat, boys. It's been very informative and co-educational. Goodbye. So long, Henry. Goodbye, Henry. Yeah, well, we didn't learn much from Henry about how to decide what we fitted for. Yeah, let's do some more thinking. Well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I ain't got no more time now. I got a date to meet a new gal at 3 o'clock. Yeah, what about the gal you were supposed to meet at 2 o'clock? Well, I was too busy to meet her. How come? My 1 o'clock gal wouldn't let me go. (laughs) Uh, Son, when it comes to women, you really know your... Hey, wait a minute. Wait, I got it. Andy, I got it. Got what? What you was fitted for. Andy, if there's any training you was done had, it's been with women and romance. If anybody could give tips to lovesick gals and fellas, you is the one. Andy, look here. We is opening up a clinic. Two dollars a visit. Just like a doctor, only you give advice to the lovesick. Mm. We'll put up a sign saying, Advice to the lovesick by Andrew H. Brown, B.S. Well, what is that B.S. for? A bachelor of smooching. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, look here. I'm going right over and see Gwendell at the newspaper and put an ad in and we'll start the clinic. Great, Kingfish. I'll go and call on Shorty and make him my first customer. Come 
Mystic Knights of the Sea Quartet singing Don't Fence Me In. Give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you, please, don't fence me in. Just turn me loose, oh, turn me loose, underneath the western sky. On my cayuse, let me rise till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences gaze at the moon until i lose my senses can't look at hobbles and i can't stand fences don't fence me in Shorty, before I tell you the reason I dropped over to see her, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Uh, why, my no, Andy. Uh, go, go right ahead. Yeah, well... Uh, Shorty, uh, tell me this. Has you ever been snuggled up to a gal, your arms around each other, your faces snuggled up close to each other, and then all of a sudden you say the wrong thing? Uh, let, let me see, Andy. The last time I was with a girl, uh, we, we, we were snuggling on the back court. Uh, no. We, we were snuggling in the front step. Uh, no. We, we, we were snuggling in the park. Uh, we, we were snuggling on the sofa. I've never snuggled. <laughs> well, look here. Mm. In that case, Shorty, I have just the fellow you need. Mm. Now, look, for $2, I can get you on the road to happiness, romance, and better snuggling. Mm. Shorty, I has just become a love doctor. Uh, excuse me, honey. Did you say love doctor? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you mean that there's a cure now for that stuff? Listen, you don't get it, Shorty. I mean for a $2 fee, like a doctor, I learned you how to handle women and what to say so they'll fall in love with you. Maybe even marry. Yeah. Marry me? Yeah, that's where my service comes in handy, Shorty. Mm. Without me helping you, you might get a wife that'll talk your head off and nag at you all the time instead of getting the other kind. And, Andy, you, you mean there really is another kind? <laughs> oh, listen. Shorty is, Shorty. Listen here. Mm. You know that coating a woman is just like training a dog. You got to know more than the dog. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you was right about that, Andy. Yeah, I, I know because I came to Airedale once. You did, huh? Mm. How did it work out? Oh, fine. Yeah, I was in, inside of a week, all that dog had to do was just bark once and <clears throat> I'd sit right up. <laughs> Shorty, I can see where you were certainly the type that would let a woman wrap you around her little finger. 
You need my service more than I think you did. Yeah, I guess I do. Listen, Shorty, you become a customer, and I guarantee you that in no time you'll be taking out gals as pretty as... Well, as pretty as that Lucy Green that I was trying to get a date with. Mm. She is really hard to date up, boy. Every guy in town has been trying to get a date with her and can't do it. Yeah, Lucy Green is awful pretty. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> how about starting that service with me tonight, Shorty? No, I can't tonight, Andy, no. But t- tonight I gotta visit my aunt. I, I mean, I, I-, I gotta meet my brother. Um, I- I'm-, I'm taking my sister. I- I- my uncle is coming to my place, and I gotta date with Lucy Green. <laughs> Then and me and Fred Gwendell here has got a great idea. Yeah, well, sit down. Sit down. Uh, yeah, we sure will, Andy. Now, uh, wait till we tell you about it. Yeah, what is the idea? Well, now, look here, Andy. Instead of uh, you giving hints to the lovesick people in person, why can't you do it through the newspaper where I work? I write a column. You mean me write a love column? Uh, that's right, Andy. Now, look here. This column is going to be called Love Hints to the Lovesick. Mm-hmm. But you ain't going to write it under your own name. Uh, yeah, you see, Andy, you are going to write it under what we call in the writing profession a nominal diploma. I is, huh? Uh, yeah, Andy, now, look here, you're going to write the column under the name of Juliet Hart. Yeah, and the reason for that is, Andy, because most of the people that write columns like that is women, so we got to make you a woman, too. Oh, I'm going to be Juliet Hart, huh? Yeah, now, now, look here, let's go over and see the editor at Fred's newspaper. Fred done range for the meeting. All we got to do is to convince him that you know the subject of love from one end to the other. Yeah. Now, we got to convince him that up till the time that you become Juliet, you was Harlem's biggest Romeo. say that Mr. Brown here is familiar with all the phases of love and romance? Oh, yeah, Mr. Henderson. This boy really knows his love stuff, all right. His experience dates way back, too. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, why, even as a mere child, Mr. Henderson, eight years old, the gals was mad about him. You know that kissing game post office where a gal asks a fella to deliver two letters in a package, which means two kisses and a hug? Yes. Well, Andy was known as the Christmas Rush. <laughs> yeah. After the first two post office parties I done went to, my mama marked me handle with care. Well, you certainly started in young, Mr. Brown. Oh, yeah, and not only that, Mr. Henderson, the boy has kept up studying about women's rights through the years. Oh, he a great lover. They call him Casablanca Brown. That's what they call him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I has done made it my life's work. <laughs> if you can call it work. Yeah. <laughs> All right, boys, it's a deal. Good. The column will start in the newspaper tomorrow, and as you say, it will be written as a woman under the name of Julie Hart. Yeah, but please make out my paychecks in the name of Andrew H. Brown. I want to wear pants when I go to the bank. Say, folks, remember that bride I was telling you about a while back? Well, you know, when she got married, she loved everything about her home. Loved taking care of it. Remember I told you how she loved to... Cook? That's fun. And she loved to... So? Oh, I've made a lot of things. The only thing about the whole setup that she didn't like... Absolutely hated. Yes, wash day. That is, until she found out about Rinso. What a discovery. First thing she found out was how easy Rinso makes wash day. 
As little as a ten-minute soaking in those soapy rich suds, plus a few light rubs on extra soil places, and they're ready to rinse. No trick at all. Easy as a breeze. And then there were the results. In a word... Wonderful. Her trousseau linens, towels, sheets, and tablecloths. And my husband's shirts. Of course. All her whitewash came out of that rinse washing dazzling... <laughs> rinse white And every pretty printed apron, all her gay-colored cottons, finest washable colors, came out of that rinse washing sparkling rinse bright Stayed that way, too, safely, through dozens of rinse washings No wonder our bride spends wash day singing... Happy little wash day song. Ladies, why don't you change to rinse now? <laughs> Come in, Kingfish. Come in. Yeah, well, how's my cute little Juliet this morning? Oh, cut it out, will you, Kingfish? Yes, I see you got a big stack of mail and letters there. Column going great, ain't it? Yeah, the only thing is, all the readers think I have a gal. Mm-hmm, yeah, that's what they're supposed to think. Love Hints to the Lovesick by Juliet Hart. <laughs> Sweet name you got there. Oh, Kingfish. But look here what one gal done sent me in appreciation for the advice I give her. A pair of silk stockings. Hmm, give you a pair of silk stockings, huh? Yeah. If he wants to put them on, honey, I'll be glad to turn my back here. Yeah. Oh, cut out that talk, will you, Kingfish? Okay, Anna, just kidding, just kidding. Well, look, I got to get out of work here. Let me see what this next letter is. Yeah, read a letter here. Say, Dear Juliet Hart, I would like to get a steady boyfriend. My mother thinks I'm very attractive. But I've heard through another party that the boys say I'm not attractive. Hmm. What do you think? I am enclosing a full-length snapshot of myself, signed Hopeful. Yeah, let me see the picture, Andy. It is. Mm-hmm, yeah. Sure is a funny pose for a picture. Yeah. Yeah, what you doing there, standing in them two satchels there? Them is her feet. <laughs> let me look again here. Yeah. I thought them was satchels. No, no, they is feet's all right. Well, if she ever go in a hotel lobby, she better keep walking, because somebody liable to slap some labels on them. Uh, tell me, Kingfish, uh, what you think of her figure? 
Well, it's certainly different already, ain't it? Yeah, she on the heavy side, ain't she? I'd say she weighed 20 more pounds than Madam Queen. Mm. What would that make her weigh, Kingsley? Well, let's figure it out with simple arithmetic. 20 pounds more than Madam Queen, and Madam Queen weigh, uh... And I think we're getting up into trigonometry here, son. <laughs> yeah, forget it. Yeah. The reporting thing is a face, anyhow. Yeah, that, that's where romance pays off. Uh, let's analyze the face. Yeah, let me get a picture in the light chair and get a good look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the light don't help it none. <laughs> yeah, just look at them eyebrows you got there. Yeah, them is the bushiest eyebrows I don't ever see. Yeah, they is kind of thick, ain't they? Yeah, I guess every time she kisses a fella, he gets dusted off at the same time. <laughs> yeah, well... I'm going to write this gal and tell her that I didn't get her letter. Yeah, that's the way to handle it, Annie. Well, I got to get on over to the lodge hall. I'll see you later. So long. Yeah, so long, so long. Now, let me see this letter here. Uh, Hello? Uh, Could I speak to Mr. Brown that writes the Juliet Hart column? I'm speaking. This is Juliet Hart. Oh, fine. Mr. Brown, I'm the fashion editor of the newspaper, and I thought it would be a good idea to give Juliet Hart's advice on fashions and dress in my column. Yeah, be glad to. You got a pad and pencil there? Oh, I can take it in shorthand. You go right ahead. Yeah, well, start off by saying... Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, hello, Dandy. Hi, I've been out of town for a week. Yeah, well, sit down, Gabby. Sit down, I'm talking. Uh, hello. Go ahead. Anything about clothes or dresses? Okay, uh, let's see now, uh... We has got to be up to date and everything. For instance, I personally won't wear nothing but the kind of shoes with the toes sticking out in the front. Open toe shoes. You sure getting fancy, Dandy. You sure getting fancy. <laughs> Go right ahead. I'm getting it. Yeah. And on account of only wearing open-toed shoes, I always have my pedicure gal put red polish on my toenails. I feel it makes them much more attractive. <laughs> Certainly been a lot of changes around here in the last week, ain't there? <laughs> Just a minute, Gabby, will you? Go right ahead. We must also pay a lot of attention to our hairdos. Now, to give you an idea of what the latest thing is, I is going to the beauty shop today. Mm-hmm. I never thought that of you, Andy. <laughs> and I'm going to have my hair fixed in a beautiful upsweep with roses pinned on one side and a big rhinestone ornament pinned on the other. This I gotta see. <laughs> Oh, that's fine, Mr. Brown. Yeah. Is you going to wear that stuff over or under your derby? Oh, <laughs> uh, you think that's enough? Well, that'll be just about right. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. And you're going to be the sweetest man in town. <laughs> Listen, Gabby, since you've been gone, I was writing a love column for the newspaper. And I was supposed to be Juliet Hart. Oh, I see, I see. That really explains a few things that had me puzzled. Yeah, well... I'm answering my mail now. Look here, I'll show you. Here's a letter. Let's see what this one is. Signed, Brokenhearted. It's a, Dear Juliet, I haven't seen my sweetheart for over two weeks. He promised to marry me and then never came back to see me again. I'm all broken up about it and haven't been able to sleep, eat, or work. What shall I do? Brokenhearted. Boy, that's a tough one. What would you do, Gabby? Well, as a lawyer, as a lawyer, I would advise her to sue, sue the man for breach of promise. Yes, indeed. Breach of promise. Yeah, breach of promise. That's what I'll do. After all, that's a very serious thing. Very serious thing. That's a violation of the banking commission. The banking commission? How you figure? Very simple, Andy. Very simple. He refused to marry her when she was banking on it. That put her out of commission. That's banking commission if I ever had it. <laughs> Thank you.
Billy, I show sure happy you're making a success out of this column you got in the newspaper. Oh, yeah, Amos. The thing's been going over two weeks now, and it's a big success. I was making $35 a week. Oh, know? that's great, Andy. Yeah, well, I better get back to this stack of letters here. They're coming in like wildfire. Oh, yeah, you got a lot of them there, all right. You better get busy and answer them, son. Yeah, let me look through them here. Yeah, let's hear them. You know, Amos, this is the first time in my life I don't ever had a job that I like. It's the first time I ever been out of trouble, <laughs> making good money, and I ain't got nothing to worry about. Oh, I'm sure glad to hear that, Andy. I'm proud of you, son. Oh, yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Here's another letter from that Miss Brokenhearted. Huh? Yeah, Gabby helped me answer the first one. Yeah. I think I told her to sue for breach of promise or something like that. Yeah, what does it say, Andy? What's it say? Say here, dear Juliet, you will never know how much I appreciate you writing me about my boyfriend who promised to marry me and walked out. I have talked it over with my family, and they agree with you. Yeah, you sure know your stuff all right, Andy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then she go on to say here... Juliet, dear, thank you again, and I am taking your advice. Today, I am starting to breach a promise suit against Andrew H. Brown. Amos and Andy will be back in just a moment. What a combination, your washing machine and soapy rich Rinso. With as little as a five-minute run per load, they'll get your clothes Rinso white and Rinso bright. Next time, make it a Rinso wash day and whistle while you wash. Rinso white, happy little wash day song. Rinso white, birdie sing it all day long. Your clothes are so white and the color so bright, you sing as you work along. Rinse the white, happy little wash day song. And here are Amos and Andy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the horrible disease of infantile paralysis must be stamped out. It can strike anywhere, the rich and the poor alike. Join the March of Dimes, help the fight against this dread disease by sending as much money as you can to the White House, Washington, D.C. to be with us again next Friday evening at this same time when the makers of Rinso will again present the Amos and Andy show and you'll hear more about Andy's breach of promise suit. This program is broadcast to our armed forces all over the world. This is Harlow Wilcox saying good night to all of you from all of us and reminding you ladies that the used fats you save in your kitchens are helping to shorten the war. They go into vitally needed ammunition, essential military medicines, important military supplies. So keep saving waste fats. Strain them and turn them in to your butcher regularly. You'll get two red points and four cents for every pound you turn in. Say, try Life Boy in your next tub or shower. You'll go for that swell Life Boy lather. It's mild, efficient, and refreshing. But Life Boy's more than a great bath soap. It's the soap that's made especially to give all over lasting protection against B.O. Don't take chances. Use Life Boy. It's the only soap that's especially made to stop 
Here's how to make breakfast as exciting as a circus and a three-day rodeo rolled into one. Shredded Ralston Pollo breakfast, starts today all shining bright. Gives you lots of cowboy energy with a flavor that's just right. It's delicious and nutritious, bite-sized and ready to eat. Take a tip from Tongo and tell your mom, Shredded Ralston can't be beat. For better breakfasts, it's Ralston. One, two, three. Shredded Ralston, the ready-to-eat bite-sized cereal. Regular Ralston and instant Ralston, the delicious hot cereals. Look for these whole-grain cereals in the red and white checkerboard packages. For better breakfasts, it's Ralston. One, two, three. Welcome to the stage of history. We're gonna tune you into depression times That started back in 1929 When the stock market fell apart And gave the depression its start And the best way you can ever know Is to tune in the man on the radio He said Selling is running ahead of the tape So it's impossible to say just how many shares have been sold today. Experts predict, however, that the number of shares sold may actually run as high as 17 million, which would certainly make it an all-time high for transactions. But Wall Street assures us that this... President Hoover was confident. The country was broke, it was merely bent. But things went from bad to worse, as if the country was under a curse. Finally, things had gone too far. We elected a man known as FDR, who said, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. Well, 15 million were unemployed And everyone was getting very paranoid They had to go on public dole To keep from being hungry and cold And a popular singer of the day Sang a little song and it went this way He sang I've got those depression blues I don't Oh, my. Oh. I've got those. 
such a crazy thing. He shot Paul Huey, shot him dead, and the crown rolled off Paul Huey's head. Now I sure wish Paul Huey was here to eat some fish and drink some beer at the fish fry, the fish fry. We heard that music on the radio. It made us all start tapping our toes. That was before TV. And we listened carefully to programs like the Lone Ranger Show, like the old Green Hornet and his friend Tato. Listen. He hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies that even the G-men cannot reach, the Green Hornet. Faithful valet Cato, Britt Reed, daring young publisher, matches wits with the underworld, risking his life that criminals and racketeers within the law may feel its weight by the sting of the Green Hornet. Ride with Britt Reed as he races toward another thrilling adventure. The Green Hornet strikes again. We got the news on the radio about the gangsters up in Chicago. There was Al Capone. Whose capers were well known And there was also Bonnie and Clyde Who robbed some banks and then they died Like this Look who's coming down the street Who's Bonnie and Clyde Look, they stopped in front of the bank Ooh, they went inside Hurry up, Joe, get the sheriff before they get away. There's no use in calling him, he's out of town today. Get your hands up, everyone, and we won't do no harm. Give us all the money you've got, and don't touch no
Then came the news about the Hindenburg, a broadcast that the whole nation heard. The Zeppelin was gonna land, and a newscaster was on hand to describe to us just what occurred the day at the crash of the Hindenburg. He said, "Back motors of the just holding it uh, just enough to keep it."
hobo jungle And Ma, she cooked some black-eyed peas And the hungry kids in that hobo jungle Said, can we have some too, if you please Yeah, times was hard and kids went hungry If there was riches everywhere None of us could quite understand it But we knew that it wasn't fair Cause jobs were scarce and the pay was poorly And we lived in migrant shacks Our paper shanties thrown The other side of the railroad tracks And the kids didn't get much schooling Cause we were always on the go Picking prunes, our creating oranges Our chopping cotton with a hole interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have just attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, the president has just announced. Japanese dive bombers came in wave after wave, and there are reports of massive destruction to the ships and naval installations at Pearl Harbor. Well, that's our story of the depression. It didn't end till 41, when World War II began, and made work for every man. And as the depression faded away, we heard the following voices say. They said, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Right and left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head. And Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five, five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. Good night, Good night, and good luck to you all. And so the price of prosperity was the bloodiest war in history. But that's all in the past, and we must close at last. And hope you've enjoyed our company here on the stage of history. Bye-bye. 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 This has been another program in the series, Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California. You know, in a great many businesses and trades, a man's or a woman's hands are exposed either to weather or to such things as paints, chemicals, and abrasives. Now that more and more people are doing industrial work, that's truer than ever. Maybe you or someone in your family has a job like this. It's tough on hands. So let me tell you about a marvelous, simple routine. 
Before work, smooth a light protective coating of Vaseline petroleum jelly on your hands. This helps keep grit from grinding into your skin, helps safeguard against infection when the skin is broken, and it makes cleanup easier. Also, after washing, apply Vaseline petroleum jelly again. This brings soothing relief to chapped, sore hands, and it helps promote quick healing of nicks and scratches. Besides, Vaseline petroleum jelly is grand for babies' tender skin and for minor household burns. Get a jar or two of Vaseline petroleum jelly tonight or tomorrow. Only 15 cents for the regular jar and only 25 cents for the large economy size. Thank you, Rosemary DeCamp. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the shadow knows. gentlemen, the Shadow's latest adventure will be on the air in just a moment. Don't miss any of it because it's a thriller from the word go. And if you drive a car, don't miss this. It's the biggest news of the year for motorists. It's the inside story of the safest thing on wheels, the new Goodrich Safety Silvertown Tire. This remarkable tire brings you something entirely new in tire safety, the Lifesaver Tread. Developed after two years of exhaustive research, after grueling tests of tread designs by the hundred... This amazing Lifesaver tread stops you quicker and safer on wet, slippery roads than you've ever stopped before. Its never-ending spiral bars, like a battery of windshield wipers, sweep water from under the tire, force it out through special deep drainage grooves, make a dry track for the rubber to grip. Thus, it protects you against skids in all directions, overcomes the hazard zone of motoring. Take my word for it, you'll never know what the word stop really means until you felt the grip of the Silvertown Lifesaver tread on a wet, treacherous road. And that's not all. Silvertowns are the only tires in the world that give you golden ply blowout protection. And think of it. You get both of these priceless safety features, skid protection and blowout protection, at no extra cost. Tomorrow isn't a bit too soon to start riding on Goodrich, spelled G-O-O-D-R-I-C-H. Goodrich. Safety Silvertown. The shadow, Lamont Cranston, a man of wealth, a student of science, and a master of other people's minds, devotes his life to righting wrongs, protecting the innocent, and punishing the guilty. Using advanced methods that may ultimately become available to all law enforcement agencies, Cranston is known to the underworld as the shadow. Never seen... Only heard, as haunting to superstitious minds as a ghost, as inevitable as a guilty conscience. The Shadow's true identity is known only to his constant friend and aide, Margot Lane. Today's story, aboard the steamship Amazon. <laughs> Randy, Randolph, Todd. Oh, 
Well, come on on over, Randy. Join the party. Hi, children. What's the celebration for? Jane's been lucky. She's in the money. She guessed right on the ship's run for the day. Yeah, come on and join us. Can't let Jane take all that cash she wanted to rick on when we dock tomorrow. <laughs> Don't mind me. I just supply the money. What'll it be, Randy? Oh, nothing now, thanks. I'm looking for my stepmother. Anybody seen her? Oh, sure. She's over there with Dr. DeVista. Oh, yes. Yeah. See you later. Oh, say, we're going for a swim in the deck pool. Want to come along? Oh, not this afternoon, thanks. Oh, I don't think you like us. Hey, it'd be a lot of fun, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Hello, Mother. Afternoon, DeVista. Oh, Sit down, Rando. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Mother. Well, tomorrow we'll be in Ricaguan. And from there on, it's going to be one great big party. Lower your voice, my son. Oh, no one can hear us in this corner. Time for the hush-hush is almost over. Well, it, uh, it will be short. Well, I hope your little revolution is half as much fun as smuggling those munitions out of the United States has been. It will be more exciting, I assure you. When the revolution is successful, you will be a hero, Todd. My countrymen will never forget what you have done for them. Well, just as long as it's fun, I don't mind putting up the money. But you will make a fortune also. The people of my blood will show their gratitude in practical ways. <laughs> you know, the more I think of it, the funnier it gets. The luxurious steamer Amazon on a pleasure cruise. With enough ammunition and guns down in its hold to overthrow three governments. Shh, be careful, Tom. Oh, don't worry. Nobody knows about those boxes marked electric refrigerators. No one but us and Tang Sui. Yes. Your Japanese valet is more practical than you, Todd. He is interested in the money he is going to make. Sure. Well, Mother, tomorrow should be a great day for you. Yes. To rule the land I was driven out of, an exile. Uh, yes, Marie. The general has promised you great power. Master. Uh, what is it now, Tang Sui? Message. Come to state room. I bring it. A message. It is a radio. Oh, let's have it, Tang Sui. Here, Master. Oh, that's all, Tang Sui. Oh, yes, I love you. Oh, blazes, it's in cold. Cold? Then it's from... Headquarters, yes. From the general. Oh, it may be important. We'd better decode it right away, my son. Sure. No, 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 not here, Todd. Oh, hardly. I'm not a complete fool, doctor. Anyway, the code book's in my cabin. I'll uh, meet you at dinner time. Your stepson. He thinks this is all a lark. He does not count the danger. Randolph, ah, he is a fool. But he will not be quite so gay if an accident happens. If he is stood against a wall and shot. That would be unfortunate, Dr. DeVista. Yes, for him. But if he were... Uh, you would come into all his money. Have you forgotten that? No, my friend. I have not forgotten that. Swim, Margot? Fun, Margot. Join me in a walk on deck. I'd love to. I don't see young Todd doing his famous jackknife with debutante. Now, Lamont, Randy's a nice boy. Uh-huh. I've known him for years. A little too much money, but that's all. And he travels around with a strange crew. His stepmother looks rather formidable. Stop making deductions. You're on vacation. Hmm. Speak of the devil. Hello, Todd. Oh, hello. Hello, Margot. Randy! Oh, what's the matter with him? Oh, very polite, was he? I never saw him act like that before. He was like a man in a day. Hmm. did look worried. He had bad news. Bad news? Yes, didn't you notice? He had a radiogram in his hand, stuck in his pocket. He saw us coming. Well, he certainly shot out of his stateroom in a hurry. Yes, and he wasn't really going anyplace. He stopped and standing there by the rail. All by himself. That isn't like Randy either. Margot, perhaps he needs help. Why not talk to him? We wouldn't talk in front of you, Lamar. All right, you go alone. I'll duck. And if he does need help? Maybe we can supply it. See you later. All right, I'll go over and talk to him. Nice day, isn't it, Randy? Huh? Oh, uh, hello, Margot. Randy, what's the matter with you? 
Well, uh, I'm in kind of a jam, Margot. Don't you worry. What sort of a jam? Oh, it's the worst darn mess I... Suppose you tell me the whole story. I can't do that. Of course you can. No. I'm an awful coward, Margot. Coward? Nonsense. What is there to be afraid of? No. Oh, nothing. Randy, I believe you are frightened. Are you in danger? Margot, what would you do if... No, no, I can't tell anyone. Tell them what? Oh, please, leave me alone, Margot. Randy. Stop pestering me, will you? I, I can't stand it. Randy, come back here. Randy. <laughs> Shadow. Yes, Margot. You you heard everything? Yes, I was here beside you. Randolph Todd must have some cause for his fear. I think I must talk to that young man. Talk to him soon. As the Shadow... Dr. De Vista, have you seen Randolph? No, Maria. I thought surely he'd be here dancing. No, he, he did not even come to dinner. Frank Sui is looking for him. De Vista, there is something wrong. Let's go to the boys' car. Come. Here is Tang Sui now. Tang Sui, my stepson? My, my master has gone back to his stateroom. Good. He is worried. He walks up and down, up and down. We must see about this. Please come, both of you. That radiogram, Maria. Perhaps that is what upset you. Here is the cabin, mister. Open the door. Oh, is it you? Uh, yes, Todd. It is us. Shut the door, Tongsei. Yes, mister. Well? We thought you were coming to the dance. Oh, I, I changed my mind. Something butter, master, maybe. No, no, I'm all right. Randolph, stop handling that old dagger and look at me. I, uh, I'm interested in this knife. It's an ancient... An ancient di- Indian knife, we know all that. Randolph, we want to know why you are acting like this. What did the general say in his radiogram? The, the radiogram? Yes. What was the message? Oh, uh, nothing important. Uh, just good wishes. Uh. Really? May I see the message? Oh, oh, no, I... I tore it up and threw it overboard. You destroyed it? Oh, yes, it wasn't important. That message was from the general. We had a right to see it. I'm sorry, I... I just didn't think. Randolph! Well, what difference does it make? Hey, what are you all staring at me for? Me think master lie. Oh, is right, Randolph. You're lying. I said I threw the message overboard. You're a poor liar, Randolph. Give me that paper. I tell you, I... Grab him. Oh, no, look, out, you... look out, he's got the knife. Oh, hold him, Tang Sui. Tang Sui, hold him. drop a knife. Let me go. Twist his arm, Tang Sui. I twist the... Stop. Drop a knife. Stop. Drop the knife, you fool. Tang Sui's jiu-jitsu will tear your arm off. Good. Go through his pocket, Mister. Yes. I'll pick up the knife. Hold him, Tang Sui. No worry, Tang Sui handle. This won't get you anywhere. Find the radio message, Doctor, and the code book. Ah, here it is. In the book. Ah, and a decoded copy. Read it. Entire plan discovered by government. Blow up ammunition to prevent capture. Must I lie? Well, what if I did? You can't take that message seriously. It is an order. It's insane. Think of all the people on this boat. I won't do a thing like that. You set off the ammunition, they'd all be killed. What is that to us, fool? We follow the general. Listen, this isn't what I joined. This is mass murder. Innocent people. I didn't mind fighting in your penny-ante war, but this... You are a traitor to your people. Your people, stepmother. Not mine. The passengers on this boat are my countrymen. I I won't let you slaughter them. I'll show up the whole scheme. You dare? watch me. Either you call the whole thing off, or I go to the captain. No, master. You can't hold me forever, Tom. So you would betray us. 
The Ricaguana, this is the fate of traitors. Mother, mother, put down that knife. The knife, it is for the traitor's heart. Maria! You threw the knife. Let him fall, Tangsi. Mistress, throw well. He is dead. What, Maria, this is murder. Do not be a fool, Davista. We had to silence him. You cannot hide the murder. It is not murder. The knife is Randolph's. His grip alone is on the handle. I threw it by the blade. My poor, distracted stepson killed himself. Suicide? Mistress is very wise. Yes. We shall say when they ask questions that we three left him alone and went to dinner. Later, in the dark, we shall carry out the general's command. Explode the... Yes, my dear doctor. Blow up the ship. Oh, hello, Margot. Hello, Mr. Cranston. This is Randy's cabin. He promised to throw a party at his last night on board, and he's walked out on us. doesn't answer. No, and I'll bet he's sound asleep in there. Randy, you lubber, let us in. I don't hear anyone inside. Oh, Stuart, come here a moment. Uh, yes, sir? Air bottles, sir. Do you know Mr. Todd's in his cabin? He was till the last I knew. His valet said Todd didn't wish to be disturbed. There, what did I tell you? I'm going to keep on knocking till he pays some attention. Uh, oh, just a minute, Jane. Mr. Cranston has no idea. Stuart, have a pass key Suppose you open the door for us. Uh, well, no, sir, I don't know that... Of course you will. Mr. Todd's playing a joke on the young lady. We mustn't let him. No one will know. You let us in. Come on. Oh, thank you, sir. Of course, if it's all in fun, sir. Oh, it's dark. Randy, where are you? Uh, the light switch is by the door, sir. Oh, yes. There we are. Lamont, he isn't here. Oh, yes, he is, sir. Look, he's lying on the floor. Yes, oh. come on, Randy, wake up. Oh! Lamont! Knife in his brain. Yes. Is he? Is he? Randy Todd is dead. Oh, my poor, poor Randolph. I'm sorry, Mrs. Todd. Stepson appears to have committed suicide. You're sure, Captain McTeague? Yes, I'm sure, Miss Cranston. There should be some reason for suicide, Captain. I am afraid our young friend was bored with life. He was ill and depressed when we left him before dinner. Exactly, Dr. Vister. I had the ship's doctor check the fingerprints on that knife. They all belong to the dead man. No one else had touched it. If only he had come oh, to me. You must not reproach yourself, Marie. Oh. Captain. Yes, Mr. Cranston? I met young Todd this afternoon. He seemed worried about something. Yes, I, too, noticed that he was troubled. The question is, Dr. Vister, what was he worried about? Who knows? He was a moody youth. Yes, poor boy will never know his reason. Captain, Todd had a radiogram this afternoon missing now. Uh, Randolph received many messages, Captain McTeague, concerning the estate. Did he show you this one, Mrs. Todd? I, I never interfered with his affairs. We're wasting time, Cranston. I think not, Captain. This message may have been important. Tang Sui, did you see it? Tang Sui, no, nothing. I'll ask the questions, Cranston. Very well. Uh, you might ask Mr. Cranston how he knows the radiogram is missing. Yes, how about that, Cranston? Uh, Todd was wearing the same suit when I found him, so I looked for it. You mean you searched the body? Yes, Stuart was here as a witness. Well, I must say you've got your nerve, Cranston. Perhaps but suicide with a knife isn't very common, Captain. Now, look here, Cranston. It's bad enough to have a suicide on board without you trying to twist it into something worse. No one saw young Todd after his three traveling companions left him. I resent that. Captain McTeague, this is outrageous. Must we be badgered by this young man? I, I can't stand his manner. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I still say... That's enough from you, Cranston. I'm merely trying. I've had more than enough of your impudence. 
Adams, take this, this Mr. Cranston to his stateroom and lock him up. Lock me up? Yes, I am holding you as a material witness. Oh, that's ridiculous. And Adams. Yes, sir. Put a man on the deck outside Cranston's cabin window. He's to stay in his room. Yes, sir. Come on, Mr. Cranston. Coming. I'll see you again, Captain. Very soon. Ladies and gentlemen, while we're waiting for the Shadow's hair-raising story to reach a thrilling climax, let me say something about a new kind of rainy day driving safety that may save your life. Because who knows... The Shadow knows. When there's wet, slippery film on the highways, there's always the grim uncertainty that your car may start sliding, swerving, spinning off the road. Why gamble with fate? Yes, motorists, and why gamble on tires when the new Goodrich Silvertown, with its lifesaver tread offers you such marvelous skid protection. And marvelous is the word for it. Because exhaustive road tests of the regular and premium-priced tires of America's six largest tire manufacturers prove that the new Goodrich Silvertown gave greater skid protection than any of the other tires tested. And don't forget, motorists, those grueling road tests weren't made by Goodrich. They were conducted by absolutely impartial engineers from America's largest independent testing laboratory, the Pittsburgh Testing Laboratory. What's more, some of the tires the new Silvertown was tested against have list prices as much as 40 to 70% more. When you consider that, then the fact that this new Goodrich Silvertown gave greater skid resistance than any tire tested is even more remarkable. Remember, when you buy Silvertowns, you get Lifesaver Tread Skid Protection plus Golden Ply Blowout Protection, two exclusive Goodrich features at no extra cost. You hear? Just go in that bag, Stuart. I write you off. Think that is all. Smart idea, Mr. Tanksoy, packing ahead of time. Most people leave it at the last minute. Boat docks tomorrow. Write you off, early in the morning. That was terrible, your boss, Mr. Todd, killing himself. Most tragic. Tang Shui, very fond of young master. Yes, very tough leg. I'll answer it. That's funny. Funny? What is? There's nobody at the door. No one? The passage is empty. Uh, never mind, steward. You can go. Right you are. Uh, shut door, please. <laughs> steward, I, I said go. Who, who laughed? I did, Tang Shui. You... Where, where are you? I, I, I cannot see you. I am here beside you, Tang Sui. Only voice? Yes, Tang Sui. The shadow is a voice. Asking for the truth. The truth about Randolph Todd's death. Tang Sui know nothing. Tang Sui lies. The shadow knows. Where is the radiogram your young master got this afternoon? I, 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 I not know. You are a wicked servant, Tang Sui. Where is the radiogram? I, I did nothing, nothing. Where is it? Here, here in pocket. Put it on the table. Yes, shadow. Why was it taken? What does it say? I give it to you. Now, now, now. Go, go, go away, please. No, Tang Sui. Not until I know the truth. Was Randolph Todd murdered? Go away, please. Go away, Tang Sui. Did nothing, nothing. Tang Sui, get away from that door. No, no, leave me alone. I run. This is 
nonsense, Tang Sui. Such a wild story. No, 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 true. Tang Sui talk with shadow. No, no man, just, just shadow. I don't believe it. It's true, Mr. Shadow, take radiogram from Tang Sui. The radiogram? You gave it to him? You cow. Cannot fight shadow, cannot see. Fool. There is the answer to not seeing him. He hid in the fog. No fog in Tang Sui cabin. Well, we won't mind the fog a little later tonight. Doctor, you'd better shut the window. Look at the way the curtains are blowing in. That's funny. There has not been a breath of air all night. But the curtains were blowing. Just for a moment. Uh, this mean... This, this man, this, this shadow, he may prove an obstacle. How? He cannot know our plan. Or what is in the hole of the ship. Now listen, we are only about ten miles off the Ricaguana coast. In a section friendly to the revolution. Yes, in the fog we can easily lower a boat and slip away. But this, this is a shadow. You and your ghost stories, Tang Sui. He cannot do anything. He has radio message. Only the copy in code. I destroyed the decoded copy. How can he read the message without the code book? And you have the code book saved, Tavista? Of course, I have it on me. Look uh, in your pocket, Tavista. Huh? What's that? Who spoke? Shadow, shadow. He's here. Yes, my friends. The shadow is here. Maria, the code book. It is not in my pocket. I took it, it is from gone. you, De Vista. I took it. Now I can read the message that caused one of you to murder Randolph Todd. <laughs> Maria, if he reads that message... First, he must decode it. By that time, he will be too late. Come, we act at once. Half speed ahead. Half speed it is, Captain. Very good, Mr. Pearson. Keep her on the course and keep sounding that whistle. Yes, sir. What night, sir? Hey, blasted fog. Watch it doesn't get any closer to shore. There are shoals in there. Aye, aye, sir. Captain McTeague. Uh, what was that? I am here, Captain McTeague. Behind you. Where? Get off the bridge. There are no passengers allowed up here. Your ship is in danger, Captain. Listen, whoever you are, get off the bridge. There's no danger. I've brought the Amazon through many a fog. The danger isn't the fog, Captain. It's below decks. Below? Say, come out into the light so I can get a good look at you. You cannot see me, Captain, but you must believe me. There are explosives in the hold. You must be crazy. There are munitions. Disguise. They're bound for revolutionaries in Ricaguana. There's a plan to blow them up. Say, who are you? They call me the Shadow, Captain. Believe me, you must go below before it is too late. Randolph Todd knew about the munitions, too. That's why he was murdered. Murdered? If you don't believe that, Captain, at least go down into the hold. Go now, and you will learn. Mr. Pearson. Yes, sir. Take over. I'm going below. I want two men. Armed. Yes, sir. Yes, Maria. Thank you. Hand me that hatchet. Yes, sir. Here. This one has the fuses. Quickly, start tying one up to the powder. If one box blows up, they'll all go. Yes, and the ship with them. What is this? Someone come. What? Tang Sui, quick, switch out the lights. Yes, sir. Good. Now, Tang Sui, stay by the switch box. Don't turn them on till I give the word. Yes, mister. Quiet, quiet. That's black as pitch in here. Got your flash, Peters? Yes, Captain. Find the light switch. If you ask me, this is the craziest... No, Tung Sui. Hey, who turned on those lights? Do not move, Captain. 
Captain. Got a gun, sir. So I see. So is the woman. And I am a good shot, sailor. Keep your hands up. Mr. Todd and... Mrs. Todd and Dr. DeVista. Say, what are you doing down here? Good evening, Captain. And young Todd's valet, too. Put down those guns. What the devil do you mean you by... You do not command now, Captain. That's mutiny. Throw your guns on the floor, gentlemen. I'll be... You'll be dead if you don't. Throw guns. What do you say, Captain? Go ahead, boys. Not much we can do now. There's my gun. The others, please, quickly. Line up facing the wall, gentlemen. Keep those hands up, Captain. You don't expect to get away with this. But we do. We will. There will be a certain loud noise, and you... But never mind. Come to it. Yes, Mrs. You will shoot the first man who turns around. Yes. Come, Dr. DeVista. We must hurry. Bring the hatchet with you. Yes, I am coming. Uh, you. Uh, what's your name? Dang uh, Sui. What does she mean by a loud noise? Are there explosives in this hole? Captain, no talk. If anything happens to this One ship... One more word and Captain die. I think not, Dang Sui. Shadow! Let go! My arm! Drop the gun, Tang Sui. The man who calls himself a shadow's got him. Softly, Captain. Let's get the others. I've got his gun, sir. Oh, let me go, Shadow. Let me go. Why, Captain, rush the others. They're laying a fuse. Fuse? Grab your guns, men. Come on. Let sir. go, let go, Shadow. Tang Sui do nothing. No, you don't like your jujitsu when it's practiced on you. Come on, the others. Drop your hands. Grab your men. Hold on them. Now, easy, lady. We got you. Oh, Shadow. This is your doing. No, Mrs. Todd. Yours. Shadow merely helps the cause of justice. Say, these are munitions, all right. Look at that. Powder. High explosive shells. Enough to blow the ship right out of the water. That was their idea, Captain. Well, I hope you three are satisfied. Smuggling, piracy, assault with a deadly weapon, sabotage. You'll spend the rest of your lives behind bars. No, Captain, not all three. Tang Sui will die for the murder of his master, Randolph Todd. No, 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 I did not. You will hang, Tang Sui. I tell you truth, Shadow. Don't you, fool. Be quiet. The truth, Tang Sui. Missy Todd, Missy Todd, one one time uh, soccer's lady, she throw a knife by blade. You little traitor. Look out! She grabbed the hatchet, sir, and threw it. We had to shoot, sir. The hatchet just missed Tang Sui. Oh, she, she, bad. She murder master. The woman is dead. Murray. Murray. So, Captain, Mrs. Todd paid for her crime. She killed her stepson. She planned to destroy all the people on this ship. Instead, it was she who perished. Peters and Johnson. Yes, sir. Take Dr. Vista and Tang Sui to the brig. Yes, sir. Yeah, come on, are you? Come on, here. Uh, Shadow, uh, I'd like to thank you. Who are you, anyway? Just the Shadow, Captain McTeague. I work in the shadows. Against crime. You saved my ship. I feel the line should thank you publicly. My power would be lost if I were known, Captain. Well, uh, there's a young man upstairs I owe an apology to. A lad named Cranston. Really? Why? Well... He sort of figured young Todd was murdered. Mr. Cranston must be very wise. And now, Captain, I must go back into the shadows. You have a 
have been listening to a dramatized version of one of the many copyrighted stories which appear in the Shadow Magazine. <laughs> presents Jet Morgan in The World in Peril. crew are on the way to Mars in the rocket ship Discovery, accompanied by two remote-controlled freighters. After five months coasting out to the Martian orbit, the time arrives for the transference of fuel supply from the freighters to the Discovery, prior to slowing the spaceships down so that a landing on the Red Planet can be made. So, donning their spacesuits, Jet and Lemmy transfer from the Discovery to freighter number one, carrying the fueling lines with them. After securing the lines, they enter the freighter from which they will control the refueling operations. She's filling up. We're beginning to hear things again. Air pressure maximum. Opening cabin hatch. As soon as you get up there, Lemmy, switch on the radio, and I'll check the air replenishing system. 
No point in working with our suits on if we can avoid it. No, mate. Uncanny, isn't it? How do you mean, uncanny? I don't know. Coming into this ship like this, finding all dark and without a crew, it doesn't seem right somehow. It's like going into an empty house, one that's been empty for years. Hey, listen. What's that? What? I didn't hear anything. Well, I did. Sounded like somebody talking. It's probably Mitch or Doc. We shouldn't hear them. Not now we're inside the ship. The walls act as a screen. That's why we need the ship-to-ship system. Listen. There it goes again. Yes, I heard it that time. There's somebody up there. But they can't be. There was nobody in here when we took off. They could have stowed away, couldn't they? If they had, they'd never have survived the takeoff. There are no couches in this ship. It sounds like they didn't need them. Listen, Lemmy. Let's hear what they're saying. can't understand a word. Oh, don't like this, Jet. Let's get back to our own ship. We can't. We've got to transfer the fuel. We'll never reach Mars otherwise. Surely they must hear us. Why don't they show themselves? Yes, why don't they? And if they won't, we'd better show ourselves to them. Eh? Come on, let's climb the ladder. I'll lead the way. Oh, blimey. Well, doesn't seem to be anybody up here. And who was that we heard nattering? Close the hatch, Lemmy. I'll check the air supply. Seems to be okay with the air. You can take your helmet off. Yes, mate. Stow your helmet, then call up Doc. See if the radio's okay. Right. Meanwhile, I'll make a thorough search of the cabin. Maybe when they heard us coming, they nipped down into the cargo hold. In which case, we'd have heard the airlock or the hatch, at least. That's a point. But where else could they have gone? Nobody could hide in here. The only place they could be is down in the inspection hold. I'll take a look there. Now, be careful, Jet. Don't go doing anything stupid. Oh, don't worry. The inspection hatch is transparent. All I have to do is put the light on and look. Oh, what are we panicking about? The ship-to-ship radio's on, isn't it? That means the receiver in this ship must have been alive before we even got through the airlock. Doc's probably been calling us... why isn't he still calling? Uh, I'd stake my life on that voice not being Doc's. No, it wasn't much like it, was it? But I'll call him up, Jet, just to make sure. Hello, Discovery. Freighter number one calling. Can you hear me? Over. Hello, Lemmy. Doc speaking. Are you all right? Yes, mate. Why? Oh, I thought you, I heard you calling a couple of minutes ago. Oh? What was I supposed to be saying? Well, I couldn't make it out. It was a strange voice, all distorted. I couldn't understand a word. So you heard it too. We thought maybe it was you. Did you try to call us? Uh, yes, I did. But I realized that you must still be in the airlock and couldn't possibly hear me. Hello, Doc. Jet here. Hello, Jet. Did you hear all that? Yes, Doc. So it did come from the radio. And that voice, I mean, sounded for all the world like somebody in the cabin. Have you heard it since? No. Maybe it's control trying to contact us. On the ship-to-ship frequency, Doc? Oh, no, I suppose not. But who could it have been, then? Who would know we were using this frequency, anyway? Maybe it's some freak transmission, harmonic or something. On this equipment? It has been known. Well, it's all very strange. I've never known the equipment behave so oddly before. Normally, reception is as clear as a bell with no kind of interference from anywhere. Well, we got it this time. Well, so long as communication with the ships is okay, we'll leave it at that. Let's get on with the work we came over here to do. Very well, Jet. Lemmy, hook up our personal radios to the Discovery. Yes, mate. We're up. Lemmy and I will now go down into the hold and transfer the fuel. Is Mitch all set? Yeah, Jet. All ready and waiting. Did you hear any... any voices, Mitch? No, I didn't. Doc told me about it, but I couldn't hear anything. Maybe something to do with my being stuck down here in the bowels of the ship. It's not all that easy to hear you. Oh, well, we'll get down to the hold ourselves. I'll call you just before I'm ready to set the pumps going. Come on, Lemmy, let's go. Contact! Coming up to maximum, Jet. Check. Ready to switch off. Cut. Tank's now filled. 
Pressure 478.5. Good. I'll leave you to extract the residue from the lines. Okay. Meanwhile, Lemmy and I will prepare to leave this freighter. Once we're outside, we'll disconnect the lines and return to the discovery. Good on you. Hello, Doc. Did you hear that? Yes, Jed. And did you hear that? That voice is definitely trying to contact somebody, and he's not succeeding. All right, Doc. Keep listening. Stay on the ship-to-ship system until we get back. Record all you hear. Sure, Jed. Oh, he's persistent, isn't he? I heard the voice twice more before Jet and Lemmy returned to the discovery. During the second call, Mitch came up from the hold and heard it too, but neither of us were able to make any sense of what he was saying. And that was the last we heard, for the time being at any rate. Three more weeks passed, during which period we traveled another 13 million miles. The red planet now looked almost as large as the moon does from Earth. Its polar ice caps reflected the brilliant sunlight and the pink and olive green features of the planet's surface stood out sharply. Gradually, as the planet rotated on its axis, the familiar places passed before us. The Lacus Solis, the Argia Desert, and the Mare Erythrium were easily discernible. The planet looked lifeless. At this distance, it didn't seem possible that human, and so far as we knew, inhuman beings roamed its surface, tilled the land, and populated the strange pyramid cities which we knew to exist in the oases where the canals meet. We were rapidly approaching the time when we would have to slow our ships down to match the speed of our objective. Unless we did, we would overshoot and miss the planet entirely. Only five million miles now separated us from Mars, but in spite of our speed, our spiral course dictated that it would be another week before we could go into free orbit round the planet. And before that could be achieved, we'd have to slow down. We carried no forward motors in the Discovery or the freighters, so it was necessary to turn the ships over before the braking power was turned on. We strapped ourselves to our takeoff couches and got ready for the turnover routine. Position control panels. All set, Mitch? Yeah, Jeff. Doc? Okay. You let me? All right, mate. Then switch on the televiewer. Televiewer on. Freighter's in full view. Mitch, gyro. Gyro, contact. Freighter gyros, contact. Position, Lemmy. Bang on. Our points of reference were the stars. Slowly, very slowly, the great ships began to turn over. Rate of turn, Lemmy. Point five degrees. I could see the two giant freighters very clearly on the screen. As always, they appeared to hang motionless against a background of myriad stars set in a velvet black sky. And then, slowly, very slowly, the sky began to revolve. Stars which for so long had occupied an apparent permanent place on our televiewer screen now began to move out of the picture, and new ones appeared to take their places. Of course, it wasn't the stars that were moving, it was us. One degree? One degree. We had 180 to go, at the end of which our ship's tail would be facing the direction in which we were traveling, and its nose pointing in the direction we had come. 1.5 degrees? Slowly, the minutes ticked by, and slowly, as the ships turned turtle, the background of stars on the televiewer screen also turned over. 179 degrees? At last, after what seemed an interminable time, the maneuver neared completion. 
179.5 degrees. Stand by to cut gyros. 180. Ship's gyro, cut. Crater gyros, cut. Stern teleview, Lemmy. Stern view, on. And there she is, the red planet, slap in the center of the screen. Stand by to fire motors. Standing by. Position, Lemmy. Okay, Jet. No drift that I can see. Firing in 20 seconds. Crater's dock. In position and ready to fire. Motors, Mitch. All set. 15 seconds. Let's hope when we put the brakes on, we don't go into a skid. <laughs> oh. Five seconds. Four, three, two, one. Contact. Radar motors firing. Speed decreasing. 4,500. 4,100. 45, prepare to cut motors, 15, now, motor cut. Freighter motors cut. Well, that's that little job jobbed. And what's the next? So far as you're concerned, Lemmy, call off control. Tell them to stand by for a coded message. Yes, mate. Just let me undo my straps and I'll be right onto it. Doc, uh, code a message, will you? Tell control the ships have been turned over and speed reduced. Yes, Jet. Marcus Solis, the eye of Mars. Looks just as sinister now as it did the first time we saw it. You remember, Mitch? <laughs> Too right I do, Lemmy. Yeah. Lemmy, Mitch. Yeah. Coming, Jet. All right, put up the telescope now, Lemmy. Jet wants to discuss our orders. Oh, I'll be right with you, Mitch, boy. Yeah. Come on, then. Well, gentlemen, by this time tomorrow, if all goes well, our journey will be over. And we'll be encircling Mars in free orbit about a thousand miles above its surface. And the best of luck. And what does that remark mean exactly? Oh, nothing in particular, Jet. Uh, but, but, but as soon as we go into the free orbit, they're bound to see us, aren't they? Well, they might mistake us for stars. And they might not. The fact remains, we have to go into free orbit. Yeah, how long do we stay there? For as long as it takes us to survey the whole surface of the planet in close-up. Jet, what do you hope to see? Well, we should be able to see the city in the lack of Solis quite clearly. Uh -huh. We could also confirm the existence of other cities, too. That so-called flying doctor told us there were many more in the northern hemisphere. And then? Then we select the loneliest spot we can find and make a landing. What about the ice caps? They were good enough for us before. Uh, the only trouble with landing on either of those is we'll have to travel such a long way before we can hope to meet anybody. And in an emergency, we'd also have a long way to get back. Yeah, so all we have to do is land in a lonely place near a city. You know, there's one thing in favour of landing back on the ice cap jet. What's that? Well, when we panicked away on our last visit, we left a freighter full of supplies, a complete land caravan and a radio station at our polar base. If they're still there, they could be very useful. Perhaps. Meanwhile, we have other more important things to discuss. There are four things above all else that Space HQ want to know. First, how are Earthmen conditioned and how, if at all, can they be brought back to normal? And if they can, 
What will they remember of the time they were in a conditioned state? Yeah, from personal experience, I'd say very little. Mm, but when you came back to normal, Mitch, you remembered quite a lot. Yeah, only events in which you had a share or could remind me of. Yeah, exactly. But it's my belief that all the things you did while in a conditioned state could be brought back to you if somebody could remind you of them, or if you again visited the places in which they occurred. You mean a conditioned man's memory could be jogged by an association of places and ideas? Mm, yes. And Mitch's case isn't the only thing I'm basing that conclusion on. There were those men we met at the underground factory, the ones who asked us to take them back to Earth. Well, how do they fit in? Well, I believe that until we came along, they thought they were on Earth, just as most people on Mars do. But their contact with us, our way of speaking, all sorts of things about us, aroused long-forgotten memories. When we talked to them of Earth... The memories of their previous lives on that planet came rushing back. Yes, but those men hardly seem to be conditioned at all, Doc. Any more than Webster did. Had the conditioning worn off, do you think? Very probably it was allowed to wear off. We mustn't forget that even though those men looked young, they were, in fact, very old. They knew, even though they didn't admit it, that they were too old to return to Earth. Back home, they would have reverted physically to their true age and died. So there was no need to keep them conditioned any longer. They wouldn't escape. Then if we do get out of a conditioned type, he must be a young man. Somebody who hasn't been up here very long, isn't it? Exactly, Lenny. Yeah, oh, that's right. And how do we tell how old they are? Well, the shorter the time they've been here, the deeper will be their conditioned state. Well, what brings you to that conclusion, Doc? Remember Dobson and Harding and McLean? Uh -huh. Even Grimshaw and Frank Rogers? Uh -huh. Their conditioning was such that they wouldn't move a muscle without being told. On the other hand, the flying doctor who had been on Mars for more than 50 years was, to all appearances, quite normal. He wasn't kept deeply conditioned anymore because it suited the Martians better for him to be in command over his own faculties. Traitor. But Dobson, Harding, and the rest weren't. They were hardly more than robots. And that's the type Space HQ want. The type we must try to take back. If we get back. And how do we go about unconditioning them? <laughs> Well, that's up to the experts down on Earth. Unless we're lucky enough to stumble on some method ourselves. But I believe they may return to normal on their own account, as Mitch did, the moment they come into contact with familiar earthly things. Well, so much for condition types. What's next on the agenda? Uh, next, uh, the spheres. No, they don't expect us to capture and take one of those back to Earth with us, do they? No, Lemmy, but they do hope we may find out something of how they're made and how they work. And if we can't discover either of those things, then we must find out how they can be destroyed. If thousands of those spheres suddenly appear over London one night, HQ want to know how to deal with them. And that's about the toughest task of the lot. But there's one thing that's certain. Those ships are not propelled by any method that we're familiar with. There are no rocket motors. Rates of acceleration can be slow or fast. Maneuverability's fantastic. They can go straight up, sideways, backwards or forwards, how and when they like. Unlike us, who, once we're coasting, are stuck with whatever course we're on. With minor exceptions. Yes, Mitch. Our method of propulsion, the reaction method, must seem very antiquated to the Martians. Our ships must appear to them as old sailing ships appear to us. They move, and eventually they get there, but that's about all. Yeah, my theory is that the Martians have long ago tapped some power, magnetism maybe, that pervades the whole solar system, maybe the whole universe. So wherever they go, that power is always with them. Mm, they use magnetic lines of force, you mean? Yes, yeah, something like that. Though what exactly it is, I have no more idea than you. What hope do you think, Mitch, of our learning how the spheres work? Even if we captured one and took it to pieces, not much. What could an ancient Egyptian make of a dynamo, or even a steam engine if he suddenly came across and one? And yet Earthmen, a conditioned Earthmen, I realise, help build those spheres. Somebody down there must know exactly how they work. And it's up to us to get hold of him, isn't it? 
I'll bet that supervisor geezer at that underground factory would know. There wasn't much he didn't know. Well, that's a job you can do, Lemmy. Soon as we touch down on Mars, nip over to that factory near Lacus Solus, capture the supervisor and bring him back to the ship. Uh, no need to be sulky, Mitch. It's not called for. A great deal depends on our getting hold of the right kind of conditioned personnel. And how do we do that? Well, that's a problem we'd have to tackle once we've landed. Together with the problem of avoiding conditioned personnel getting hold of us. And then there's the exact date of the invasion. If we never get off Mars, we must find that out and radio it back to Earth at the first opportunity. And finally, there are the Martians themselves. Who are they? Where do they live? What do they look like? And where do they get those asteroids from? The ones that carry the spheres. And are they propelled on the same principle? Well, they must be. Well, in that case, they could leave for Earth or any other part of the solar system whenever they please. Of course they could. They wouldn't be dependent on favorable positions between Earth and Mars before they left, as we are. They wouldn't have to travel halfway around the sun, 400 million miles, to reach an objective that comes within 40 million miles of their own planet anyway. Yeah, the only thing they'd have to consider was the direction in which the Earth was traveling in relation to their own planet. Though if their ships are as efficient as they appear to be, they'd hardly have to consider that if they didn't care to. The outlook isn't very rosy, is it? No, it isn't. But we'll do our best anyway. Maybe we'll find somebody down there who will want to help us, as Webster did last time. Maybe. Meanwhile, we'll make our plans as though we're getting no help from anybody. Once we're down there on the Martian surface, we stick together as much as possible. Nobody is ever to wander away on his own. Now, is that clear? Too right, right. Now, if we have to split up, it'll be only in pairs. And one pair will always remain in the vicinity of the ship, wherever we put her down. Right. Uh -huh. Yep. Now, remember, our main object is to radio all possible information we can to Earth. If we can get away ourselves later, with or without conditioned types, then all the better. But our own safety is second to the relaying of the information that is so vital. Now, if anything should happen to me, Doc will take over duties as captain of the ship. After him, Mitch. Don't go any further. I'm not used to giving orders anyway. Very well, gentlemen, that's all for now. Exactly how and where we land will be decided after we've travelled round the planet a few times and taken a good look at it. Right now, prepare to go into free orbit. How's it going, Mitch? Hey, Oh, fine, Jeff. Everything's bang on. The freighters and the Discovery can be fired just as soon as we're ready. We don't need to transfer more fuel. Nah, not until we're in free orbit. We've still got enough in the tanks to get us that far. Good. How far off are we now? Oh, about five hours, Doc. Uh, I only hope this trip has been worthwhile. Well, why shouldn't it be? Oh, I don't know. When I think of those Martians with all the power they have at their disposal, the thousands of ships they must have, and then I think of... Us in these, let's face it, antiquated space machines. I know, Doc, I know. These three ships are the only ones the Earth possesses that can fly beyond the moon. Well, I don't think it'll help to dwell on the fact. No. It just seems so hopeless. Yeah, as hopeless as David going out to meet Goliath. Hmm? If I can drag Lemmy away from the telescope, I'll get him to call control. I'll do it. You've got plenty on your hands. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. The message is already coded. He can send it as soon as he's made contact. All right. Hey, Lemmy. Hello, Doc. Here, do you want to have a look? Uh, maybe I will, but Jet wants you to call up control. There's a message waiting on the table. Oh, just as I was enjoying myself. Now get over to the radio. There's a good fellow. Yes, Doc. Right away. Hey, Jet, Doc. He's here again. I heard him. What was that, Lemmy? The voice is back. 
come up, almost slap on Control's frequency. Are you sure it isn't Control? Of course I'm sure. I switched the gear on and there he was. I hadn't even called anybody. Well, how loud was he? Strength one to two. But it was him all right. Were you able to make out what he said? No, not really. He was on and gone almost before I realised it. I don't know how long he'd been calling. There he goes again. Quiet, Lemmy. Switch on the recorder. Yes, dear. Hey? Mars Fleet, he said. And freighter number one. Can't be. There's nobody in our freighters, I hope. How far off frequency is he, Lemmy? Not much. Would he hear you if you called? I doubt it. Not without a retune the transmitter. Very well. Call control. Tell them we have a message for them. Hello, Earth. Discovery calling control. Have a message for you. Come in, please. Well, it'll be nearly eight minutes before we get a reply. And while we're waiting, Doc, perhaps you'd code another message requesting permission to retune transmitter. Yes, Jeff. Aye, aye. There he goes again. He seems to be in a bit of a state, doesn't he? Well, Doc? Uh, permission granted. All right, Lemmy. Away you go. Yes, Jack. What do we use as a call sign? Or do we let him know who we are? Uh, use XOP. Right. Well, now that's the transmitter retuned. Now, let's see what happens. Hello. Hello. Station XOP calling. Can you hear us? Anybody? Didn't sound as if anybody can. Uh, give him a chance, Lemmy. He's probably millions of miles away from us. Hello, Earth. Hello. Oh, is he? Freighter number one calling Earth. Can you hear me? Trying to contact you. Over. He's not so far away after all. Call him again, Lemmy. Hello. Station XOP calling. Receiving you, strength one. Are you receiving me? Over. Is the recorder on, Doc? Yeah. Get ready to take a bearing this time, Lemmy. And be uh, quick about it. He may not talk for long. Yes, Jack. Never you mind, mate. Who are you? Uh, it doesn't answer that one. Here, let me. Let me take over. Hello, freighter number one. XOP to freighter number one. Can you hear me? I can hear you. We asked you a question. Who are you? I asked you first. Who are you? Listen are to... you Earth or Moon Control? Listen to the tone of his voice. That's a condition type if ever I heard one. Will you answer my question, please? I know who this is. It's the Martians trying to contact those spheres that landed on the lunar colony when we took off. Then why should he want to talk to Earth? That's a point. He must know the signals between here and the moon would take minutes to cover the distance. Yet there's hardly any delay between replies. Which means he must be somewhere down there on the Martian surface. Hello, freighter number one. Moon control here. Receiving you strength one. Over. Now, see what that produces. Hello, number one. Your call received. We'll take it in a few moments. But first, who are you? Straighter number one of the Mars fleet have important message for you. And what are the rest of the fleet? Where are they? The rest of the fleet? You are only number one. There must be others. I can't remember. I, 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 can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. It's all so fake. There were others, but I can't remember. Oh, I bet you can't, jump. Can't you even remember who you are? Frank, Frank, what? Frank Rogers was in number one, in the original fleet. Only part of the time, Lemmy, his ship was actually number two. It can't be, Frank, it can't. Well, why not? We left him behind, didn't we? But the Martians got him. He was deeply conditioned, or so you said, Jeff. That's right, Doc, he was. Last we saw of him was in the Lack of Solis. Why, he didn't even know me. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, number one, you say you are Frank Rogers? That's right, that's my name. 
Are you alone in your ship? Yes. Nobody else with you? The, the freighters carry a crew of two. Now he's going crackers. Hello, Rogers. Hello. Hello, number one calling. Receiving your strength five. Over. Strength? This is a weird business. Can I talk to him, Jet? Sure, if you think you can get any sense out of him. Uh, hello, Frank. Hello? Who's that? This is Doc. Doc? Oh, Doc, what are you doing down there? You should be out here in the fleet with us on our way to Mars. I am. I'm in the flagship. I must talk to Earth or Lunar Control. If you have any message, Lemmy will pass it on for you. What's the matter? Doesn't he like the name? Lemmy Barnett. He got lost out in the land truck. Yes, I think this is Frank Rogers' jet. Every time we mention something to do with the fleet, it seems to jog his mind. But I was never lost in any land truck. Him and two others. They'll never get back to Earth. None of them will. I'm the sole remaining member of the whole fleet. Hello. Hello, Frank. Can you hear me? Freighter number one calling. I have a message for you. For goodness sake, Doc, let's take the message. Maybe that'll give us some insight into what's on his mind. Ready to receive your message. Over. Receiving you. Give us your message, please. From trader number one to discovery. Have routine checks. Are you ready to receive them? Whoever it is, he must be clean off his rocker. Hello, give us your message. Do you hear? I can't. It's Whitaker. He's... Oh, oh my people, away from me. Whitaker? But he's dead. Get away, do you hear? Hello, flagship emergency. Hello. That was episode six of Journey into Space. Taking part in this recording were Andrew Folds as Jet Morgan, Alfie Bass as Lemmy, Guy Kingsley Pointer as Doc, and Don Sharp as Mitch. Other parts were played by David Jacobs. The orchestra was conducted by Van Phillips, who also composed the music. Journey into Space was written and produced for the BBC by Charles Chilton. Those three beautiful stars all use Lux Toilet Soap regularly. You know what a forthright person Joan Blondell is. Yes? Well, when I asked her about her complexion care, she said, A Lux girl? You bet I am. Active lava facials really work for me. Lux Soap Beauty Facials do make skin lovelier, all right. Skin specialists proved it. In three out of four cases, daily Lux Soap Care made skin softer, smoother. The fact that so many famous stars recommend Lux Toilet Soap shows how right it is for delicate skin. Now there's a beauty counsel for lovely ladies everywhere. Why not make fragrant white Lux Toilet Soap your daily beauty soap? Remember, it's Hollywood's own complexion care. The choice of nine out of ten lovely stars. Now, Sugar Crinkles, the sugar rice treat that's just right sweet, is proud to present Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. 
And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Say, if there ever was a cereal designed to boost a family's breakfast morale, it's new sugar crinkles. Why, that sugar rice treat that's just right sweet makes breakfast more fun than a circus. Come breakfast time, just pour on milk and you've got a breakfast main dish as you like it. Those golden nuggets of sugar-coated rice we call sugar crinkles are really special. Not too sweet, the way some sugar-coated cereals seem to be, and not like others that don't seem sweet enough. Sugar crinkles really are the sugar rice treat that's just right sweet. And whether you eat them from the bowl for breakfast, from the pack as a snack, or both ways, you'll love sugar crinkles. Try them soon. And now, Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. mail, Mr. Dillon. Oh? That looks like official stuff, Chester. Yes, it is. All for you. Every bit of it. <laughs> Were you expecting a letter? Oh, no, sir. If I ever got a letter, it'd just mean trouble of some kind. Well, that's what my mail usually means. Yeah, not this time, though. No new wanted notices? Yeah, not a one. Looks like all the bad men have had a change of heart. Mm, sure does. There hasn't been a reward posted for anybody in over a month. Well, not that we know of, anyway. Mm. Uh, Mr. Dillon? Hmm? I think I'll go see if there's any beer left over at the Alphaganza. You join me? <laughs> no, thanks, Chester. Okay, sir. I'll see you later. Yeah, sure. Well, hello. Tell me, is it all right to tie my horse here? Well, of course it is. Well, some towns they don't like strangers being too bold. Well, there's mostly strangers in Dodge. It's a pretty big town. Heard a lot about Dodge. Good or bad? Bad, mostly. No offense to you, mister. Well, I don't own Dodge. <laughs> I'll, uh, buy you a beer. Well... I was just going into Alfreganza here. You know, a fellow feels funny when he don't know nobody in the place. Oh, I've been that way many a time. Uh, where are you from, anyway? Colorado Territory. A lot of country out there. Sure is. Bartender? Wait a minute. Sure. Chester? Oh, Sam. Now, 
What'll it be, stranger? We'd like two beers, please. You must be buying. Yeah, I am. Why? Well, you don't look like you got any more than the price of two beers on you. Oh, don't mind Sam, mister. He gets spells like this. That's all right. It's all right, he says. And if it wasn't all right... Oh, leave him alone. Well, Sam, I hate these gracious. saddle bums that ride a hundred miles to a fine saloon and then order a glass of beer. One thing I'll say for the Texans, they may cause a little trouble now and then, but they drink right. Well, I don't take whiskey myself, but I'll buy you one, mister. Oh, beer's good enough for me. Sam, you stay up too late night. It sours you. It sour anybody. Waiting on a lot of riffraff. Hey, Sam. Sam, you better take it easy how you call this fella. I had, huh? You sure had. You know who this is? What do I care who he is? You're Lou Medellin, ain't you, mister? Lou Medellin? Why, sure it is. I seen him three months ago over at Colorado, at La Hunter. He was right across the street, and he just shot two men. Fastest thing ever happened. I'd sure hate to dangle with him. You really, Lou Medellin, mister? I seen you right at the start, Medellin. That day at La Hunter. You sure built yourself a reputation since then. Oh, yeah, I've heard talk about you. <laughs> you don't look like a gunman, though, nor act like one neither. Well, they always said he was real soft-talking and polite-like. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm proud to know you, Medellin. Uh, my name is Casey. How do you do, Mr. Casey? <laughs> Mr. Casey. Imagine Lou Medellin calling me Mr. Casey. Say, I, I sure would like to buy you a drink. No, wait a minute, Casey. I sort of owe this man an apology. The drinks will be on the house, okay? Where? That's kind of you, bartender. Sure, sure. I just want you to feel welcome here, anytime. Uh, Mr. Medell, uh, how come you're wearing your gun in the holster now? I always heard you carried it loose in your belt. I can handle it both ways. Yeah. Maybe you thought people wouldn't recognize you so fast wearing it different. It, it kind of marks a man right off carrying his gun in his belt. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it does. Say, I, 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 I'm sure proud to know you. I never got real acquainted with a, a man of your breed before. My pleasure. My, you sure are polite, Mr. Medellin. No need to be otherwise, I figure. Well, one thing, you make a lot of friends mighty fast. But then I guess that's easy for a man like you. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it is. Well, let's uh, move over to the table, gentlemen. We'll have our beer there. Uh, Sam. Sam, Mr. Medellin wants the drinks brought to a table. You bet. Be right there. <laughs> Say, I've been looking all over for you. Oh, uh, trouble? No, sir, but there sure could be. Did you ever hear of Lou Medellin? Is he in town? Yes, sir. He was right in the Alphaganza there about an hour ago. I had a beer with him. Well, what's he doing in Dodge? You find that out? Well, he didn't say, Mr. Dillon, but he is about the nicest, politest fellow you ever met. All I've heard about him is he started killing people a few months ago up in Colorado Territory. Yes, sir. He's a gunman, all right. Casey saw him in a fight in La Hunter. He's with him right now. Casey's a fool, Chester. Don't you be. No, sir. It's just that I never met nobody like him. Oh, he's so quiet and easygoing. 
Sure. I think I'll have a talk with him, Chester. Come on. Say, you think he's here looking for trouble, Mr. Dillon? man like that's always looking for trouble. Well, yes, sir, I guess that's true, all right. That's him. Sitting right over there with Casey. I've got three more days here in town. And before I quit La Hunt, I said to him, I want to know sure that you... <laughs> Hello there, Marshal. I guess Chester told you who this is, huh? This here's Lou Medellin, Marshal. Hello, Medellin. Greatest gunman in Colorado Territory since Clay Allison went to New Mexico. Yeah. I've heard a little about you, Medellin. Pretty new at this game, aren't you? Yes, sir. Pretty new. Casey didn't mention it, but my name's Dillon. I'm a U.S. Marshal. I represent the law in Dodge. Glad to know you, Marshal Dillon. Are you planning to stay here long? Well, I don't make plans much, Marshal. I thought maybe you were here for some reason. Oh, no. No reason. None I can think of, anyway. I see. I'd hate to be in your shoes. You try to run Lou Medellin out of Dodge, Marshal. I told Chester that you're a fool, Casey. Now I'm telling you. Medellin's a, a friend of mine. You better talk easy to uh, me. Shut up, Casey. Medellin, this is just what I came to tell you. Trouble breeds around a man like you. Somehow it can't be helped. And I'm hired to keep trouble out of Dodge. Don't worry about me, Marshal. I'm not worried about you. Well, no, sir. Ain't nobody going to take Lou Medellin. Yes, there is. No matter how good he is, somebody will kill him one day. It always happens sooner or later. You may be, Marshal? Maybe. If he starts any trouble. There's nothing to worry about, Marshal. Don't you tell him a man like you ain't afraid of him, Medellin? Tell him. I think he knows that. Don't you, Marshal? I'm an old hand at this game, Madullin. You're new. But if you live long enough, you'll find out that being afraid isn't what counts. No? Well, what does? Worrying about it. The way you're worrying right now. I have a feeling you've been plain lucky so far, Madullin. But don't count on it lasting. I know what I'm doing, Marshal. What are you doing in Dodge, Madullin? I wanted to see the town. Isn't that all right? Yeah, that's all right. But the first sign of trouble and you're through here. Sure, Marshal. Sure. family's getting weary of the same old breakfast cereal every morning, time to retire it and introduce them to new sugar crinkles. Say, new sugar crinkles is the sugar rice treat that's just right sweet. And I'm here to tell you, sugar crinkles make breakfast more fun than a circus. Golden crisp nuggets of sugar-coated rice and every nugget in your breakfast bowl just right sweet. Forget your experience with sugar-coated cereals that seem too sweet and with others that don't seem sweet enough. 
treat yourself and your favorite family to new sugar crinkles at breakfast time and snack time, too. For your breakfast or a snack, you love sugar crinkles. Sugar crinkles can't be big. Sugar ice cream, best of bright wheat. With milk for the breakfast joy. As a snack from the pack, oh boy. Can't be big, just right sweet. Sugar crinkles, good to eat. Now back to Gunsmoke. I'd seen a lot of gunmen and killers in my time, and some of them were mighty peculiar people. But the strangest I'd ever run across was Blue Madellan. It wasn't his quiet, polite manner that bothered me, but the feeling I got that he wasn't very sure of himself or of what he was doing. I didn't see him again that day or the next until along toward evening. I was sitting in Doc's office when Chester came up and told me he'd heard Ab Fisher was in town. I'd known Fisher some years back, and I had heard a lot about him since. So I set out at once to find him. Having one gunman around was bad enough, but having two meant certain trouble. You going to look in the Texas Trail, Mr. Dillon? I might as well try it first, as close as... Yes, sir. Oh, why does everything have to happen at once? Uh, nothing's happened yet, Chester. See him? No. Over oh, there's Luma Dullin over there. Well, he's sitting with Miss Kitty, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Uh, stay here, Chester, and keep your eyes open, huh? All right, sir. Kitty, I'll tell you what I'll... Oh, hello, Matt. Hello, Kitty. Dolan. Pull up the chair, Marshal. Oh, thank you. You look worried about something, Matt. Maybe it's because I'm sitting with his girl. You're sitting with me because you got the price of a drink, mister. That's not very nice of you, Kitty. Never mind, Madolin. Tell me, do you know Ab Fisher? Ab Fisher? No, I don't, Marshal. Ever heard of him? Never even heard of him. Good. So long. Goodbye. He's sure worried about something. I know he is. Ah, don't pay any attention to him, Kitty. Have another drink? Where'd you get all the money? You didn't have much last night. Casey over there lent me some. Till mine gets here. I've heard that story before, too. (laughs) (laughs) Who's this? Never saw him before. So you're Luma Dillon. Who are you? Ab Fisher. Oh, I'm beginning to understand this. You gentlemen will excuse me. What do you want, Fisher? Told me you were in town. Thought I'd like to meet you. Oh. Well, I'm glad to know you. I heard about you in Denver. Oh. Sure, sure. They say you're pretty fast. Yeah, I guess I am. 
tell him it makes me uncomfortable to be around a man who thinks he's better than I am. Huh. Don't feel that way. Here, I'll buy you a drink. Put your money on the table. All right. That is. There's mine. I don't understand. One of us gets four drinks. The one that lives. What? Drama, Dylan. Go on, draw. No, wait. Listen, and I will. You, you killed him. You killed Lou Madellan. Yeah, did you? But... He didn't even draw. He never even tried. He had his chance. If he lives, I'll give him another one. Anytime. Right now, I'm going to have me four quick drinks. Hold it, Ab. Matt Dillon. Well, so it is. Don't try anything. Why should I, Matt? You're under arrest, Ab. What for? Killing Lou Madellan. They say you drew first. He was kind of pokey about it, and I had to. But you can't arrest me, Matt. It's murder, Ab. Guess you haven't heard. Lou Madellan's got a price on his head. He's wanted in Denver for shooting a few citizens while he was robbing a bank. Dead or alive, Matt. I'll get a thousand dollars for this. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. You're no good anymore, Ab, but at least you never tried to lie your way out of anything I know of. If it wasn't true, Matt, I'd have tried to shoot you. I'll telegraph about it. But meanwhile, you'll have to sleep in jail. Sure, Matt. Save me the price of a room. Oh, Casey, don't stand there. Get Madellan over to Doc's. your telegraph, and Ab Fisher's right. $1,000 for Luma Dillon, dead or alive, and it's signed by the sheriff up in Denver. Will I tell Fisher about it? Uh, no, let him wait a while. He isn't worried anyway. I'm going to go up to docks and see if Madellan's still alive. Yes, alive, Matt, but not for long. Can he talk? Oh, he can talk all right, but when he goes, he'll go fast. There's nothing more I can do for him. Where have you got him in the back room? I thought he'd be quieter there. Come in with me, Doc. Huh? Sure, Matt. Sure. Marshal Dillon's here, Madellan. Hello, Marshal. How you feeling, Madellan? Poorly. I ain't gonna make it, Marshal. That fella shot me up bad. Yeah. Uh, Madellan, I want to ask you something about last night. Oh. Then you found out. No, I haven't found out, but maybe you'll tell me. Why didn't you draw on Ab Fisher? 
I... I was too scared. Like you said. I tried to tell him about everything, but... He shot me before I could talk. That doesn't make sense. How could you have killed all the men they say you have acting the way you do? Marshal, I never killed a man in my life. What? No, sir. I'm just a poor cowboy. I got fired my last job. And I thought maybe I'd find something to do around here. What are you talking about? It's the truth. I ran into them fellas at the bar. They thought I was a big gunman. And they gave me a lot of respect, Marshal. I never had no respect before. From nobody. Oh. Well, uh... What is your name? Coots. Dubby Coots. Uh, Dubby Coots. Well, I thought something was wrong. Guess I... I look like that Lou Medellin, don't I? Are you fooled Casey anyway? <laughs> but I sure couldn't act like them. <laughs> I'm in bad shape, Marshal. I'm sorry, Coots. It's all right. First time in my life, I got me respect. Very first. He's dead, Matt. Dubby Kutzer. Poor devil. Yes, it's uh, it's kind of sad, Matt. Yeah. It's going to be kind of sad for Ab Fisher, too. Now i got to go tell him that he killed an innocent man. And he'll probably hang for it. You're going to be mighty disappointed. Just a moment, we'll tell you about next week's adventure on Gunsmoke. If you want to be a real good scout, Mom, tell you what to do. See that your whole tribe sits down to post toasties for breakfast in the morning. What a way to start the day for every big and little Indian in your wigwam. You see, post toasties are heap good cornflakes. Spankin' fresh, crisp, with that sweet kernel corn flavor toasted right in. It's a feather in your cap to serve them. Sure, because post-toasties are not only the best thing that's happened to corn since the Indians discovered it, post-toasties are the best thing that ever happened to breakfast. And say, if you want to make a good thing even better, add your favorite fruit to that bowl full of post-toasties, sugar, and milk. Mmm, it's mighty delicious nourishment. Get post-toasties, the heap good cornflakes... Next time you shop.
Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Neston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Lauren Stobkin, Harry Bartell, and Herb Ellis. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Ken Peters speaking. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Listen next week at this time when Gunsmoke will be brought to you by Post Toasties, the heat good cornflakes. everybody. Here we are all ready to take you down to Pine Ridge for another visit with Lum and Abner. Brought to you by the makers of Horlicks, the original malted milk. Your neighborhood druggist feels a responsibility for your health. He is extremely careful in filling your prescription. He uses fine, pure drugs because he knows that to protect your health, he must give you the highest quality. In the same way, your druggist recognizes quality in other items that affect your health. When you see him serving Horlick's malted milk at his fountain, for instance, you know that he is responsible. He is spending a few cents more to give you all the good nourishment of Horlick. He doesn't serve imitations of Horlick's because he knows that inferior products don't give you the same valuable nourishment that you get in Horlick's. This delicious and satisfying food drink is made only from rich milk with all the cream in it and of the finest wheat and malted barley. When you next go into your drugstore, look for the malted milk dispenser with the Horlicks name. If you don't see it, ask your druggist to get Horlicks, the original malted milk. A good druggist will not substitute. And now, let's see what's happening down in Pine Ridge. Well, Lum was elected president of the new store by a very small majority yesterday. But after finding out that Abner had been urging the public to vote for him, he resigned and gave the office to Abner. So today, the Juddam Down store opened up under new management. Abner's lifelong ambition has been realized, and he is certainly exercising the authority of the office. As we look in on the Juddam Down store today, Abner has stepped out for a few moments, and we find Lum and Cedric discussing their new boss. Listen. Yeah, I ought to know how it'd be if ever he got to be president. Give Abner a little authorities, and he wants to show out, seems like. Yes, sir, I bet he's told me a hundred times that he's president already. Yeah, I know when he was first elected constable, he was the same way. Went around resting everybody he's seen. Dug up old laws nobody hadn't thought of in 20 years and started enforcing them. Yes, sir, I recollect that myself. I, I know you had my paw locked up in jail down there for nearly a week just for shooting at Jim Blake when they had that fight down there at the blacksmith shop. Oh, he'd kept me busy dismissing the charges again, folks. Like I told him about your Paul there. 
He never had no ground for locking him up. He shot six times at Jim, but he never hit him every time. No, and that's what made Paul so mad. Said the way Mr. Abner acted, you'd think he'd kill Jim. Well, I think Abner was just resting, folks, to be sure everybody knowed he was constable. He don't use no judgment. Like when they had that bank robbery in there at the county seat. Sheriff called out here and said one of the robbers was red-headed, and hey, Granny's Abner arrested every red-headed person in Pine Ridge and locked them up over there in the Calaboo. <laughs> Men, women, and children. And I'm just afraid he's going to be the same way running the store when we get started. You mean you think he's going to try to arrest everybody? No, but he's going to try to show his authority. Just look at the signs he's got stuck up around. Sign them all Abner Peabody president. Keep out of the cracker barrel and keep out of the showcases. This means you. Means me? No, he says this means you. He means whoever's reading the sign. Well, it's you he's talking about then, ain't it? You're the one that's reading them. No, he means everybody. He just puts this means you on there so whoever's reading it'll know he's talking about them. Well, I don't see how they'd know he meant it for them if he was talking about me, though. I told you you weren't talking about you. Oh, <laughs> I reckon I never understood you right. I, I thought you said a minute ago that the sign said it meant me. No, the sign says this means you, and you is everybody. Uh, when he says me, he means everybody, huh? He don't say you, he says you, or... For goodness sake, Cedric, can't you understand nothing? The sign says... Never mind, never mind. I wish to goodness you'd learn how to read. You're just going to cause us a batch of trouble here trying to wait on the customer. Cause some trouble? Yeah, not knowing how to read, you're liable to give the customer something he never called for. Better let Abner do all the waiting on the trade. Well, ain't you going to wait on the trade none? No, I reckon not, Cedric. Shorter makes me dizzy-headed to reach up on the shelves that way. Can't get my arms up no higher in my head, no way. See there? Now, Abner can reach clean up over his head like this, but I just can't do it to save my life. Well, what do you aim to do then, Mr. Lum? You, you said this morning you couldn't help me stack that feed back there on account of the dust from it bothered your ass, me, and... Oh, no, no, no. I can't get around that feed at all. There'll be plenty for me to do. I'll stand up here to the front shoulder and speak to the folks nice when they come in, figure up profits and losses and stuff like that, study up ideas mostly. You see... Uh, yeah. What's the matter? What's this Abner's been writing down here? Oh, I don't know. He's been working on that there all morning. I can... What these initials is for? S-D-S. <laughs> yeah. According to this, Cedric, you're the S-D-S, whatever that is. Well, maybe he's pinted me to some office, I bet you. Hmm. You've got two or three offices here. <laughs> you're the C-F and the F-B and the W-C-I. Well, I reckon I must be his favorite. <laughs> he said he'd do right by me if he got to be president. Well, he's give me a couple offices here, I see. The S-O-U and uh, S-O-S. Hmm, S-O-S. <laughs> now, I might not figure out already what that S-O-S stands for. That's more than likely store overseer. Yes, Mom, that's about what that is. Yeah, <laughs> I knowed he'd have to turn the run in the store over to me. Pretty nice of him, giving me importance job like that. Maybe he ain't going to make such a bad president after all, Cedric. He's got a good idea there, I know that. R reckon what them officers is he give me there? Well, I don't know. I'm trying to study out this other than mine. S-O-U. What could that be? <laughs> I've got an idea that S stands for special. Special. And granted, I don't know what that could be. I'm special something, but I don't know what. Here's some rules he's got down here, too. Rules? Yeah, rules to run the store by, I reckon, looks like. He's got, uh, 
store will open at 6 o'clock sharp. Close at 7 o'clock. Well, just going to stay open an hour, huh? Well, no, I reckon he means open at 6 in the morning and close at 7 at night. But he'll get tired of having to get down here at 6 o'clock every morning to open up. That won't last long. No, he won't keep that up long, I bet you. Here's another rule. Clerks will have to pay for stuff they eat in the store. Clerks? Yes, Mom, he told me he's going to do that this morning. He said he's going to put a stop to us running our hand in the candy case every time we pass by it. Yeah, but he ain't calling me no clerk, is he? I'm a SOS, store overseer. You can't make no rules for me. As long as I've got charge around here, I'll make my own rules. Oh, oh, oh yonder he comes back, Mr. Lum. We, we better get busy. I ain't going to get busy. I ain't got nothing to do. Well, you better find something to do then. You know what he said this morning about loafing. Well, he ain't got no authorities to be bossing the store overseer around. I'll tell him where to get off at. Hey, 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 you boys, get up from there and get to work. Boys? Don't just can I turn my back without you boys just sitting around doing nothing? Uh, who do you think you're talking to anyway? Well, I'm talking to both of you. Get up out of the president's chair there. That's my private desk. Just because ain't no customers in the store here, it don't mean that you can just be sitting around. Straighten up them shelves and dust them counters off. Get busy here. You mean for me to get up and dust off counters? Why, sure I mean for you to do it. You don't think I'm going to do it, do you? Well, uh, uh, well, what about them, uh... Uh, what? Well, that stuff on the desk there. I, I just happened to be leaning over there a while ago and sort of got to glancing over it, sort of. What I... stuff are you talking about? Why, uh, well, that list of them offices and stuff that you find us to. Oh, well, I weren't ready to say nothing about it yet, but seeing as how you've done meddled into it, I reckon I may as well go ahead and tell you. That's what I call a new deal here at the store. The new deal? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to start running the store here, sort of like the government's run. We're going to make some changes around here. We're going to have a new deal. Yes, sir. Well, just from what I've seen of it, Abner, I think it's an uncommonly good idea. I know you use good judgment in the office you pointed me to. <laughs> Now, there's something I can look after, special at SOS business. Well, I figured you was a man for the place, huh? Oh, yeah. Granny's I'll have things in first-class shape around here. Well, fine. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that, Mom. I was feared I might have a little trouble with you over there. Oh, no, no. You're the president, Abner. Whatever you say is good. Yeah, I now, that's your time. Never did figure out that first in there, though, that uh, SOU. Oh, uh, well, come here, Cedric. I'll just give these offices out right now. Here, let me get my spectacles on here. Now, you see what I've did. I've took and divided the store into different departments, and that kind of you boys, uh, head or chairman of the different departments there. Oh, you just like the giver me. That's the way. I yeah. think that's a good idea. Well, I, I couldn't figure out none of them officers you give me, though, Mr. Abner. Couldn't, couldn't make them out. Oh, well, now, let's see here. <laughs> Cedric, you're the uh, SDS. SDS. Yeah. I've seen that. <laughs> Much obliged to you. Now, SDS means Snappy Delever Service. That means that you do all the delivering, Cedric. Well, Cedric, Cedric, you're a good one for that office, all right. That's a good one. Yeah, we're going to have some system around here. Everybody know what they're supposed to do and then go and do it. Yeah, that's the time. Now, Cedric, you're also the uh, CF. Well. That's uh, CF is cat feeder. Oh. Be sure you set a saucer of milk out for the cat twice today. Yes, Mom. And you're the FB. That's fire builder. 
And WCI, that's the wood carrying her. Well, too. I do know that. <laughs> Looks like I got the best of this, don't it? <laughs> Abner, I'm afraid you're showing partiality, but I ain't holding it again. It's all right. Yeah, I'm not Now, Cedric, that. Abner's the president. He's doing this for the good of the store, and we've got to do our part to make it a success. Yes, sir. <laughs> wood carrying her. Now, I reckon that you read the rule there where the store is to be opened up at 6 o'clock every morning. Yeah, we've seen that. It's a good idea, all right, Abner, if you'll keep it up. But well, I'll keep it up, all right, if I come down here and find out that you ain't opened up at 6 o'clock long... Find I'm out a... I ain't opened it up. Yeah, uh, your first office there, Lum, is S-O-U. Yeah, that's the one I couldn't figure out right there, but I... Well, now, that S-O-U stands for store opening upper. You mean it? Well, I'll be dead blamed if I do it. Huh? You think the store manager's going to get up at 6 o'clock every morning to open up this store? You just got another guest coming. Store manager? Yeah. If you want me to be store manager, you better get somebody else to do that opening well, up every morning. who said anything about you being a store manager? Well, I seen it there on the list. S.O.S. I know the minute I looked at it, store overseer is what you meant. Well, there. here, Lom, you're the S.O.S. all right, but that stands for sweep out store. Your job is to get down here every morning and have a store swept up and open up here already when I get <laughs> Well, we don't know, of course, but uh, we're just afraid this new deal won't prove very popular with Lum. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of you have to work pretty hard all day, no doubt. You just have to keep on your toes. You can't afford to relax, feel drowsy. But I'll bet a lot of you do get a bit tired at times all the same. If you do, here's a tip that may help you to keep on the job. Whenever you feel that drowsy-eyed, fall-asleep feeling coming on, Dissolve a couple of Horlick's malted milk tablets in your mouth to help you fight off fatigue. They have all of the energy-giving, sustaining qualities of Horlick's malted milk powder. And they're just as nourishing, too. This is Carlton Brickert, speaking for Lum and Abner and Horlick's, who now bid you all good night and good health. Christian sci-fi with adventure, drama, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Anira's assignment. Anira Henderson was used to dealing with every kind of trauma in her job as an emergency room tech. Then, the disaster that wiped out her family, except for her brother Jarl, landed tragedy squarely on her own lap. In the midst of her grief, she is recruited to join an elite force of universe healers. Fixing radically broken things has always been her life's dream. But, this just took it to a whole new level. Read Quantum Spacewalker, a Nira's assignment by Grace S. Gross. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, this is Jason Prell. Jason I Pre- manage Mrs. Cronin's trust fund. 
Oh, sure. We haven't met, of course, and I know that I'm overstepping the ordinary bounds of propriety, but I simply have to talk to you immediately, if possible. Well, can't it wait until train time? You're going with us up to a party in the Adirondacks, aren't you? Yes, I am, but it'll be too late then to make very much difference. Well, uh, maybe you could tell me the general idea of what you want. I understand Mrs. Cronin has authorized you to obtain the circle of fire from the bank and to keep it in your possession until she wears it at the party. Yeah, that's right. Don't do it. Leave the necklace where it is. Why? It's a long story, Mr. Dollar, and it goes a long way back. The whole thing is a lot more complicated than you realize. Well, I'm beginning to realize it. Just exactly what is it you're worried about? I'm worried about Mrs. Cronin's sanity. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, New York City, to the Home Office Surety Mutual and Trust Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the Cronin matter. Expense account continued. Item four, a dollar and eighty cents. Taxi to the offices of the Daily Times Courier for a look at the morgue files on Mrs. Cronin. The clipping started with the year 1916, when a bright-eyed, wide-eyed kid named Dolly McLean danced her way out of the chorus lines of a two-bit musical and straight into the limelight of Broadway. One hit show after another. Hits just because she was in them. And parties, balls, social affairs. The Dancing Darling. A critic tagged her with a name in her first write-up, and the name stuck. So she danced. Danced away the mad, crazy years that followed World War I. And like everybody else, she lived it up. There were rumors of engagements, love affairs. The Baron this, count that, one after another. Shorty Weber was mentioned a few times. And Jason Prell was in from the beginning as a promoter, though, a business manager, not as a lover. Her friends were mentioned, hundreds of them. Then Barnaby Cronin came into the file. Boy wonder of the business world, the golden prince. Engagement, marriage, and Barnaby's fabulous gift to his new bride, a half-million-dollar necklace of diamonds and emeralds, the circle of fire. Then Barnaby's sudden death, Mrs. Cronin's seclusion. End of file. Expense account item five, $24.30, transportation, hotel, and incidentals. And a taxi to the railway station to find the special coach Mrs. Cronin had chartered to haul her guests to the Adirondacks and to her Roaring Twenties weekend party. I purposely got there early, but one of the guests was even earlier. Mr. Dollar, wait. Hmm? You are Mr. Dollar, aren't you? That's right, but I don't think... Prell, Jason Prell. I thought you might come down early to meet the bank messengers. Thank heaven you did. Well, I'm afraid I don't... Dollar, I've known Dolly McLean and Mrs. Cronin for over 35 years. All that time, I've managed her business affairs, arranged her personal contacts, been like a father to her. Yeah, I've read the newspaper clippings. Well, uh, newspaper stories can be misleading sometimes. They build things up. Sensationalism. It's true, of course, that Dolly and I had some quarrels. Who doesn't? In spite of everything, I was still her best friend. Go on. I know Dolly, nor better than anybody else in the world. I know how she's gone downhill since Barnaby died, especially in the last year or so. And I know this whole idea is the worst possible thing she could do. Have you tried talking to her along that line? She won't listen. She's dead set on it. I'm hoping you can help. How? Point out to her how dangerous it is to go off into that isolated place with a piece of jewelry as valuable as a circle of fire. It's worth a fortune. Somebody's bound to try to steal it. 
I still don't get what you're driving at, Mr. Pro. But I just told you, it's the risk that's involved. To whom? Mrs. Cronin, of course. She knows about the risk. She's willing to take it. She doesn't know what she's doing. Hey, you said something on the phone about her sanity. Are you trying to imply that no, she's... No, 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 no. Not, not yet. But she's not well. She burned herself up back in those early years. And she hasn't much left. The only thing that keeps her going is... Has a crazy kind of belief. Belief? Dolly believes in people. So do I, Mr. Pro. Well, yes, yes, of course. But Dolly's whole thinking hinges on it. All the people she knew back in the heyday, the people she calls her friends, in her book, they can do no wrong. She lived in a dream world, still does, like a fairy princess. But it never really existed. Things weren't like that back in those days, Mr. Dollar. So I've heard. Most of the people she thought of as friends were only trying to use her. Barnaby and I would block them off, take care of things when things had to be done, and let her go on living happily in her never-never land. And now, that's the only land she has to live in. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Why, some of those friends would cut their mother's throat for a tenth of the value of the circle of fire. Those are the guests she'll have with her party. Well, I've already been told once that somebody will steal that necklace before the weekend is over. Do you want to add your prediction? I think somebody will try. And that's all that's needed to start that dream world of hers falling apart and to make her face things the way they are. May I ask you a question, Mr. Pro? Yes, of course. This trust fund you're managing that her husband left for her, just how big is the setup? Barnaby Cronin was a wealthy man's dollar, but he had his ups and downs like every business investor. The capital is adequate for her support, but not much more. Is the necklace a part of the trust capital? It's her own personal property. Otherwise, I could have prevented it from being taken from the bank. You have complete control of the trust. Yes. Barnaby knew that she had no understanding of business matters. I see. She's old, Mr. Dollar. Older than her years. Tired. All that keeps her alive is her belief in the past. Yeah. Her dream world. Where everybody loves her and protects her. Where she's still a dancing dermot. And if that dream world is destroyed, she'll be destroyed along with it. Now phone the bank, Mr. Dollar. Ask them not to bring that necklace here. I'm afraid they think I was crazy. Why? Because I've got it with me, Mr. Prell. I picked it up myself two hours ago. Then heaven help us all. The convention coach Mrs. Cronin had charted for the run to the Adirondacks was arranged with a long aisle of individual staterooms and a main lounge area at one end. It could accommodate 50 people, but when the train pulled out, there were only six of us in the coach. Six. Out of the hundreds of friends she'd had in the old days when she was in the big time and on top. And even out of the six, three of us were new acquaintances, people who hadn't known her back when. I was there, of course, because I'd been hired to be there to protect her fabulous necklace. And Sylvia Blake, still playing it tough and cynical, was probably hoping for a magazine article. Or hoping for something. But the third newcomer, there was the question mark. Oh, I think this whole thing is just too exciting for words. Don't you think it's too exciting for words? Well, I... I know who you are, of course. You're Mr. Johnny Dollar, and you're supposed to protect those fabulous jewels. And I'm Laura Dean. And I think we ought to call each other Laura and Johnny, because after all, it's a party, isn't it? Up till now, I was having doubts... You're, uh, obviously not one of Mrs. Cronin's friends from the old days. Oh, no, I just met her back there at the station. You what? 
Well, I talked to her on the phone, of course. She sent an invitation to my aunt, who was a very dear friend of hers. Only they hadn't seen each other for years, and she didn't know my aunt had passed on over a year ago. So I phoned her and told her, told Mrs. Cronin, I mean. And she said for me to come to the party, she'd like to meet me. And I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Yeah, well, uh... Johnny, do you think they'll really have champagne in bathtubs like they used to back in her time? If they do, it'll get awful wet out. There are only six of us to drink it. Oh, gosh, I don't see how you can call six people a party. Well, the thing is, we'll all be in there trying hard. <laughs> now you're joking me. I'll bet you're fun at a party. Oh, where do you see the act I do with a lampshade? Who did you say your aunt was? I don't think I said who. When do they start serving the champagne, Johnny? When they see the whites of your eyes. Oh, that's cute. I like that. Thanks. Now, about your aunt. Oh, poor old soul. She'd have loved this, too. You ought to hear about some of the parties she and Mrs. Cronin used to go to. Yeah, I imagine. They well, used uh... to go every place together back in those days. The newspapers called them the Siamese Twins. The Siamese... Siamese Twins. That was just an expression. Fritzy like... Morell. Is that what you're saying? That you're Fritzy Morell's niece? Sure. Did you know her, Johnny? No, I never met her. Oh, you'd have liked her. She was a lot of fun. Loved a party. Gosh, I thought there'd be no people She kept babbling on, and I listened to her and tried to figure her out. The chatter was smokescreen. Underneath it, she was cool, sharp, and shrewd. I didn't know what she was up to, nor why she was here. But I did know one thing. Fritzy Morell had died about a year ago, true enough. But she'd left no surviving family and no niece. Laura Dean was a liar. I hadn't seen Mrs. Cronin since we pulled out of the station. She'd greeted us, then gone right to her stateroom and stayed there. And when I saw Jason Prell come hurrying from that direction, I could read the look on his face even before he reached me. Mr. Dollar, please. Mrs. Cronin? Yes, go to her at once. What is it? What's wrong? She was suddenly taken ill. Very ill. Hurry. Mrs. Cronin. just nerves. I've had it before. My doctor in New York gave me some tablets to take whenever... Are these the tablets? This bottle here? Yes. You know what they are, Johnny? Uh, yeah, I know. All right. So he does say it's my heart. But he's wrong. It's just nerves. Yeah, sure. That's not why I sent for you, Johnny. You have the necklace. Yeah, Want to see it? No. Now, I'll wait until it's time to wear it. Johnny, I've written something here. Now, I'm going to sign it, and I want you to sign as a witness. Well, uh, all right. Unless you'd rather have Jason Pro. Mm, Jason would argue about it. There. Now, you sign. There you are. Keep it for me. Do you mind if I know what I've signed? Oh, of course not. Read it if you like. In the event of my death, I, Dolly Cronin, being of sound mind, bequeath the necklace known as the Circle of Fire to Sylvia Blake. Sylvia loves jewels. She'll appreciate it. Yeah, I imagine she will. And she's not to know about this, you understand, because, of course, it'll be years before she gets it. Oh, sure it will. Now, you'd better try to get some sleep. I'm going to. And thanks, Johnny. It was nothing. You know something? I was heartbroken when they didn't show up at the station. All my old friends. 
But I've been lying here thinking, and I've finally figured it out. Oh. They all went on ahead. They'll be waiting at the house. They're trying to surprise me. Don't you think so, Johnny? I said, yes, I thought so. But I was lying because I didn't think so. But she was still a dancing darling, and she had that way about her. You wanted to protect her. I didn't go back to the lounge. I walked down the corridor to my stateroom. It was night by then, and the corridor was only dimly lit. My stateroom was dark. When I opened the door, I caught a bare flash of movement too late. Oh! came to, minutes later, I was lying on my stateroom floor, blood seeping from a cut in my head. I felt in my inside pocket for the bulky leather case that had held the necklace. It was gone. There'll be another intriguing episode in our story of the Cronin matter tomorrow. Tomorrow, an old love and an old hate. And violence breaks out at midnight. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. Has a flavor so pleasing. Miracle Whip. Tastes so lively, so teasing. Miracle Whip. Only one of its kind. Miracle Whip. Best salad dressing you'll find. Miracle Whip is the only one of its kind because it's a different type of salad dressing made from a secret craft recipe. Miracle Whip combines the best qualities of old-fashioned boiled dressing and fine mayonnaise. So it's truly distinctive and delicious with a flavor millions of folks call just exactly right. Try it, won't you? One taste will tell you why it's America's favorite salad dressing. The one and only Miracle Whip. Now you can double your listening pleasure by subscribing to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. For only 99 cents a month, you gain access to more shows for your enjoyment. Subscribe now and happy listening.
story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to Narcotics Bureau. For seven months, you've been working with federal and state agents in breaking a narcotics ring. You've apprehended the small fry. Next in the line, the big man. Your job, get him. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. And that's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. So, if you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, July 9th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of Narcotics Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way into work, and it was 3.58 p.m. when I got to room 24, Narcotics Bureau. Hi, Joe. Feel better? Oh, not quite as tired, Ben. That Costello thing was a long haul. Narcotics Romero. Okay, Bigham. I'll tell him. Meeting's in five minutes. Chief Brown's office. Okay, I want to pick up my stuff from the captain first. Hi, Skipper. Come on in. A little better Friday, get some rest. Yeah, a couple of good meals. That's the trouble with the Flats gang. They never know where to eat. Sit down, Joe. I want to talk to you. We got a couple of minutes before the meeting. You'll probably be getting this all up and down the line from here in. Just want to let you know that we think you and all the men in the operation did a fine job. My part wasn't much. You did more than I did. Oh, we all worked, but you had the dirty end of it. Good job. Here's your equipment. You'll need it now. Oh, yeah, thanks. Badge, your ID card, your gun, six shells, that's all of it, huh? Mm-hmm. That's it, thank you. You're back at it. Yep. Here's one for you. Look at this. What's that you got? Mug shot of a girl picked up in a narcotics raid last night. Oh, pretty girl. Long, blonde hair, beautiful eyes. She looks young. High school girl? She was when that picture was taken, 1947. She was 16. Here, look at this one. Yeah. Same girl. Yeah. That's the way she looked at 11.30 last night when we picked her up. She looks 50. 19 years old. Three years on heroin. She might as well be dead. She is. 8 o'clock this morning. Let's go. It's time for the meeting. You just looked at the best reason I know of for getting Belmont. She get her stuff from Belmont? Costello was pushing to her. He got his stuff from Belmont. They all do. Romero, let's go. All right, William. Anybody brief you on the Costello interview, Joe? No, no, not yet. Chief Brown will fill you in. Here we are. Hello, 
Chief. Gentlemen, come on in. You uh, men all know each other. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hiya, Craig. Uh, Captain White, I think you and your men know Policewoman Caswell. Yes, sir. How are you, Florence? Hello. I'm Miss Caswell, Inspector Virgil Beckner, State Narcotics. How do you do? Oh, yeah. Bill Craig, agent in charge, Federal Narcotics. Hello. How do you do? Before we get into the Belmont procedure, let's see how we stand on the Costello case. Uh, White, do you want to fill everybody in on the information we got from Ralph Costello? Yes, sir. Uh, after his arrest Monday night, we interrogated Costello for about four hours. We <coughs> confronted him with the package he sold to Friday here. How'd the stuff test? Crime lab ran it through, about a third of an ounce of heroin, fair quality Mexican stuff. The man we picked up with Costello, Tony Morris, was questioned as well. He corroborated Costello's story. <coughs> What'd you get from him? Well, he told us he had a great deal of information on the big man in the operation, Belmont. That he wouldn't tell us a thing unless we made a deal with him. What kind of a deal? He wanted everything. But we finally agreed that the only thing we might possibly work out was his prison term. Mm -hmm. We called in the U.S. District Attorney. We talked another four hours. How'd it work out? District Attorney told Costello the only thing he'd do for him was to have his prison terms run concurrently rather than consecutively. Not much to pay for what we got. Costello gave us enough to enable us to start moving on Belmont right away. We've had his memo confirmed. We've got a list of most of his pushers. Now we can get to him. Any definite plan, Chief? Oh, White and I have been talking over here with Craig and Beck. We worked out what we think might be a pretty good plan. Uh, Craig, do you want to lay out how your men are going to handle it from the federal end? We'll work from out of town to the center here. We'll check his contacts across the state lines. We've already traced his connections to the east, New York syndicate. We'll keep working that end. Beck, uh, how about your state narcotics man? We'll work inside the state line here. We've already checked out part of his operations. We've <clears> located <throat> sources in San Francisco, Bakersfield, Fresno, as far south as San Diego, Lower California. We'll draw all those ends up tight. Keep moving. You fellows can both give us a hand if we need assistance. You bet. Yeah, that's right. Fine. Uh, White, what are we going to do locally? Oh, it's going to be a case of taking what we know and finding out what we don't know, putting the two together. Seems to me to be a case of watching the man at all times. Belmont shouldn't be able to blow his nose without one of our men knowing it. It's going to be a tremendous undertaking. You all know the tough job it is shadowing narcotics, man. They're fidgety, hypersensitive. They recognize anything out of the ordinary at once. Well, for that reason, it can't be a one-man operation. Everybody's got to work our undercover won't work this time. They're no doubt alerted. So we'll work it from another angle. When do we start? We've already started. Belmont lives in Manhattan Beach. His house is under surveillance. Has been since yesterday. Well, I can't impress upon all of you the importance of not letting Belmont out of your sight for an instant. A narcotics buy could be made in 30 seconds. If we're not there at the instant, we lose him. Do we have anything at all as to when he might be ready to deal again? Nothing. Nobody seems to know Belmont's exact operating time. Could be any time. And in order to prosecute him, we've got to be there when the narcotics are in his possession or under his control. So we start to live with him and stay as close as we can without being tabbed until there's a buy. That's it. Captain White has all the assignments for our local men. Okay. We'll watch him. We'll stay close to him. If he makes a move, be there. The meeting lasted four hours. During that four hours, a plan was formulated which we hoped would end in the successful apprehension of the number one man in Pacific Coast narcotics traffic, Arthur Z. Belmont. How do you watch a man, his every move, for 24 hours, day in, day out, without his knowing it? How do you watch a man whose very existence depends upon not being watched, who is expertly schooled in every trick and device of police surveillance, whose method of operation will change with the slightest disturbance of his daily routine, and if that M.O. changes, you've lost him. Thursday, July 10th, in the small Los Angeles suburb of Manhattan Beach, population 10,172, three very ordinary events took place. A public nurse began a house-to-house -house survey. She asked the simple question, have you ever been vaccinated for smallpox? 
She started canvassing 27 blocks from the home of Belmont. Policewoman Florence Caswell. Two Japanese gardeners new to the city of Manhattan Beach began soliciting work. They started asking for jobs 38 blocks from the home of Belmont. Sergeant Ten Fujikuni and Patrolman John Kagawa. A team of surveyors driving a station wagon marked with the seal of Los Angeles County began taking linear measurements for the proposed enlargement of storm drains in the area. They started 14 blocks from the home of Belmont. Lieutenant John Bigham, Central Narcotics, Sergeant Ben Romero, and myself. Okay, Ben, bring in the rod. Let's knock off for lunch. What do you want to eat, John? In the wagon. Better take the transfer with us. Kids might pick it up. Okay, I got it. I can't keep the sand out of my shoes. Might as well get used to it. We're a long ways from home. Yeah. Nine years on the job is the first time I ever brought my lunch in a paper sack. Who knows, Joe? This might change your whole way of living. Bad. Want to sit in the front? No, I'm getting back. Fellas, have a look at the local paper. No, why? Manhattan Beach Sentinel, down the bottom of page one in the box. Read it. Yeah, let me see. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good. What is it, Joe? Read it out loud. Well, it says preliminary work on storm drains started. Surveyors. Well, it goes on to say that surveyors have started taking measurements for the new drains. Mm-hmm. Captain White's idea had the story planted, even got a release from the planning commission. Mm, won't hurt us a bit. Well, you said lunchtime. I've got enough here for the whole department. Four hard-boiled eggs. See what kind of sandwiches I drew. Deviled egg. Look here. She even put them on egg bread. I hate eggs. Mm, looks like the captain driving up the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's him. Driving a city car. Chief engineer. How's it going, Bigham? Fine. Slow. How'd your lunch? What do you got? Deviled egg sandwiches. Got plenty. Can't stand them. How about a ham and cheese? Yeah. Thanks. There you go. Hmm. How's everybody else doing? Hmm. Very slow. It takes time. Got to keep taking our time. If we tip it before we got close enough, Belmont's on his way. Mm-hmm. How long are we going to have to keep our distance? Not much longer. We can't take the chance of starting everybody out right on top of Belmont. Right. It might look funny to him. Anybody else would be okay. For the average person, your operations might look normal, but we can't afford to try to get it by Belmont that way. Mm-hmm. With a hop cutter, you never know. It's not so much that we don't know. We just can't take any kind of a chance. Mm, that's what I mean. You might have started right on Belmont's front lawn, and he'd never got wise. But we wouldn't want to risk it. Belmont been out of his house today? He's on the go quite a bit. Left his house at 9.13 a.m., went down to the shop right market, bought a half pound of bacon, two dozen eggs, loaf of bread, whole wheat. Sergeant Hodges waited on him. He's clerking in the grocery department. Oh, yeah. Then he drove over to his neighborhood gas station, got a full tank of ethyl and two quarts of oil, 30 weight, drove home, got back at 9.42. Are you still there? Yeah. About time you guys were back at it, huh? Right. Okay, Ben. You want to grab some of the gear? Yeah. I can. Right, let's go. Hey, Joe. Hmm? Give me a leftover bread crust, will you? I'll give them to the Seagull. Yeah, sure. Here you go. Right. Well... Foot by foot, we're getting closer to Belmont. Hope nobody tips it. Nobody should, unless you don't trust those gulls. We surveyed the city of Manhattan Beach for five weeks. Policewoman Caswell, posing as a nurse, continued canvassing. 
Everybody concerned with the job of standing watch over Arthur Z. Belmont carried out their routine day by day. Daily reports came in from everyone in the operation. These reports would be sifted at Central Narcotics and progress reports compiled for the use of those in the field on the Belmont case. All police cars as well as city cars such as we were employing were equipped with three-way radio communication. All personnel were in constant contact with one another. Wednesday, August 12th, it was the decision of Captain Lynn White that the idea of our posing as city surveyors had been exhausted. Further use of this could possibly arouse suspicion. Belmont lived at 1227 Ocean Avenue. Two days before we were called off the surveying job, the city leased the private residence at 1216 Ocean Avenue. A van load of furniture was moved in. Drapes and curtains were hung. Regular deliveries of daily newspapers and milk were made to the house. To all outward appearances, the house was occupied by an average family. Actually, it provided another blind from which we could continue to observe Belmont. Shortwave radio equipment was installed in an upstairs room. Ben and I were assigned the night watch. Now the car just stopped in front of Belmont's house. How many does that make? Three cars. Just a minute. Yeah. A couple of guys getting out. One up the front door. Uh, where? Let me see, huh? Take a look. Watch curtain. Uh-huh. Yeah. Belmont answered the door. He's letting him in. Something's doing. What do you think? I don't know. You called Captain White, didn't you? Oh, an hour ago. Just after the first car pulled up. He'll park in the alley and come up the back way. Yeah, I better check with everybody again. This portable seemed to warm up slower than our car radio. Mm, about the same. Ah, here we go. Unit 140K to Unit 145K. 145K, go ahead. Just checking. Your location the same? That's right. Ocean and Clipper. We got three cars to cover now. Stand by. Unit 140K to 143K. 143K, we got it. Standing by. Location still good? Same. Be talking to you. Stand by. 140K to 149K. 149K, go ahead. Stay put. We got three cars now. Yeah, we heard. Still the same spot. Standing by. Roger. Captain just pulled into the alley, Joe. Don't worry. Good. Government's porch light just went out. Mm-hmm. Let's see, three guys came in the first car, two in the second, two in the third, is that right? Yeah, seven all told. Eight counting Belmont. Maybe he's running for office. Joe, Ben, any changes since you called me? Another car. Mm-hmm. Anybody you know? I'm too dark to see their faces. Mm-hmm. Dodge Coupe, gray, black package sedan, green Chevy. Well, that might be for me. I told the office they could reach me here. Yeah. White. Yeah, Bigham. You must be wrong. You sure he's not lying? All right, thanks. Yeah. You sure Belmont hasn't left his house since you came on duty? Couldn't possibly. Not without somebody in the details spotting him. He got out somehow. He made a buy. Captain White called the office and talked to Benny Arredondo, our narcotics undercover man. He confirmed the fact that somehow Belmont had a meet and successfully completed a narcotics transaction. None of us could figure how, and we didn't know when the meet took place. Arredondo told us that the buy had been made sometime in the past ten hours. The arresting officers had recovered a portion of the narcotics, two bindles of heroin. They were found in the possession of one of Belmont's runners, Archie Scott. I can't figure it. What do we do now, Skipper? Sit tight and watch those three cars in front of Belmont's house over there. Maybe he didn't have to leave the house to make a buy. That's the way I got it, Peg. 
Those cars down there, those are the first visitors he's had in the past 24 hours? As far as anybody knows, we watched it close. Sometimes it's like that. Uh-huh. Well, it looks like somebody's coming out over there. Two guys. How many in there? Eight, counting Belmont. All right, Friday. Get to the cars. Yeah. They started to move out yet? No. Five, six, seven. That's all of them. They're heading for the car. Yeah. Looks like a three-way switch. We'll see when they start to move out. Attention, all units and special details. Stand by. Here's the license numbers, Joe. Oh, good. I need those. Thanks. Green Chevy's headed south. Black package going north. So's a Dodge Coupe. Uh-huh. Dodge turn left at the corner. It's headed east now. Got it. 140K to all units and special detail. Unit 149K. 149K, go ahead. 1946 green Chevrolet sedan, license 61 William 852, headed south on Ocean. Roger. Unit 145K. 145K, go ahead. 1947 gray Dodge Coupe, license 1X-Ray 1898, headed east on Clipper Street. Roger. 143K, come in. 143K, yep. 1939 black Packard sedan, license 6 Mary 6778, headed north on Ocean. Roger, got him spotted. Could be a dry run, couldn't afford to chance it either way. Nothing to do now but wait it out. That's right, and pray for rain. It was eight minutes past 8 p.m. We sat back and waited for the reports to come in from the cars. At 8.25 p.m., 17 minutes after the alert was broadcast, Unit 149K reported in on the gray Chevrolet sedan. The car and its occupants were thoroughly searched. No trace of narcotics was found. 8.42 p.m., 34 minutes after the alert. Unit 143K to 140K. 143K, go ahead. On that 1939 package sedan, license 6, Mary 6778. Check them down. Nothing. They're clean. 8.50 p.m., 42 minutes after the alert, the report on the third and final car came in, the 1947 gray Dodge Coupe. That's it. Not a trace of narcotics in any of those three cars. Belmont beat us. Tough luck. It's going to be tougher. Now he knows we're after him. listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. Now, here's an authentic report from Fatima Cigarettes. In 1949, Fatima more than doubled its smokers from coast to coast. In 1950, enjoy Fatima yourself. You'll find Fatima extra mild. Because Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. You'll find Fatima tastes much better. Fatima's superb blend gives you a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. You'll find Fatima best in cigarette quality. Fatima has always stood for the best in cigarette quality. For a new year of greater smoking enjoyment, buy Fatima in the appealing golden yellow package. You will agree... Fatima is the best of all long cigarettes. The three-car switch. Three cars arrive at a given point at different times. The meet takes place. The drivers of the various cars leave the given point at the same time. Each drives away from the point in a different direction, making it three times as difficult to follow them. The practice was not new to the Narcotics Bureau or the dealers in narcotics. 
It usually includes the dry run in which the actual mechanics of the narcotics are carried out, but neither the merchandise nor the money is on hand. This practice forces the narcotics officer into pure guesswork. If the officer doesn't follow up, the buy could be successful. If he chooses to follow up, he takes the chance of exposing himself and tipping his hand on the rehearsal. In the case of this particular car switch, we lost. But taken in the car roundup were seven of Belmont's trusted runners. Six of these men refused to talk, but the seventh, Clifford Bissell, gave us a lead to one of Arthur Belmont's most trusted friends. His name was Floyd Ketchell. He and his wife lived at 357 Evergreen Drive, Linwood. It's a nice house. Yeah. Yes? Uh, police officers, we'd like to ask you a few questions. What about? Well, as you probably know, there's been a series of burglaries here in your neighborhood. No, I didn't know. Oh, yes, quite a few. Uh, would you mind if we came in and talked to you about it? I don't know anything about any robberies around here. Everything's okay. This is just a routine check, Mr. Ketchell. Everybody else in the neighborhood's cooperating. Only take just a minute. All right, you can come in, but I have to leave in about 15 minutes. Thank you. You have a nice place here, Mr. Ketchell. Yes. Now, what was it you wanted me to help you with? You know a man by the name of Clifford Bissell? No. How about Arthur Z. Belmont? Who? Arthur Z. Belmont. Bissell says you and Belmont are good friends. I don't understand this. I thought you wanted to ask me about some robberies. I wonder if you'd mind rolling up your left sleeve and I'd like to look at your arm. What for? You're a user, aren't you? No, I'm not. Then you know what we're talking about, don't you? No, I don't. Do you have any narcotics here in the house? Certainly not. You mind if we look around? Why do you want to search the house? Why won't you show us your left arm? Floyd Ketchell would admit nothing, but he allowed us to search his home and grounds. An extra detail of men was called out to aid us in the search. We covered every foot of the acre of ground. This took two days. We found nothing. On the third day, under the flooring of an upper bedroom of the Ketchell home, we found Ketchell's plant. He was using heroin. You want me to call Belmont, is that the idea? That's right. We want you to set up a meet with him. I'm not going to rat on Art. He's a friend of mine. Well, suit yourself. We found your plant there. We've got you. You'll be the fall guy. You mean I take all the heat? Why not? Bissell put the finger on you. we got to have somebody. Why pick on me? We just told you. We found the stuff here. Bissell fingered you. You're it. All you have to do is make a phone call. You won't have a clean slate, but it's going to sound a lot better in court. All right. It makes sense. You know what to tell him. We've already been over all that. Call him now. Friday, listen in on the extension. If Ketchell changes his mind in the middle of the conversation, I'll see that he hangs up. Yeah. Hello? Hi, Art. Floyd Ketchell. How are you, kid? Fine. How's Edna? She's fine, Art. Say, I got a friend on his way to Honolulu. Uh-huh. He wants to take a little package along. Gotta have it. You know him? Is he okay? Yeah. Old friend. You sure? Yeah. Have to be pretty careful. Got hit Wednesday night down the beach. Yeah? Who'd they get? Purcell and uh, six guys from New York. Get off easy. It's a dry run. I didn't know that. Nothing in the papers. He hasn't hit yet. It will. How much do your friend need? Gonna be in the islands for quite a while. Says a couple of ounces should do it. You got the money now? He's good. Can you swing it tonight? Boat leaves from San Francisco day after tomorrow. He hasn't got much time, has he? Okay, you want to pick it up? Yeah. Uh, all right if I bring him along? I want you to meet him. Good customer. If you're sure about him, yeah. 8.30 at the store. We'll be there, Art. 1100 cash. Yeah. Better be okay, Kitch. He is. Better be. I had one dry run this week. I can have another. 
3.22 p.m., we took Mr. and Mrs. Floyd Ketchell back to Central Division where they were booked on suspicion of violation of the State Narcotics Act. 4 p.m., we met in the office of Chief of Detective Thad Brown. You need $1,100, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How much was in the Secret Service fund? $223. Allotment for this month's all gone. Well, where'd you get the rest of it? You haven't got it all yet. Romero's the banker. How you got it figured, Ben? Well, let's see. I've got it all written down here. First off, we got $223 cash. And these fellows all gave us their personal checks. Jack Donahoe and Robert gave us $200. Johnny Begum put up $100. And Captain White's in for $150. Joe pin in $35 bucks and $22 is all I can swing. That's uh, $720. You need $380, right? Yeah, that's the way I got a figure. Okay, I think I can make up the rest. How about Wynn's Cadillac? He loaned it to you? He's out getting it washed. It's 41, isn't it? Yeah, sedan. A little old, but it looks good when it's washed. Flashy. Oh, that's what you need. You gonna make the buy away? Yeah. Ketchell will be with me. Okay. It's all here. $1,100. Yeah, we've only got one hitch. It's 5 o'clock and the banks are closed. Yeah? Not much time to run around getting checks cashed. It was 5 p.m. We had three hours to cash $720 in personal checks. We split up and covered every possible place in the city where we were known and where we knew they would cash them. By 7.45 p.m., we had the 1100 in cash. The serial number on each bill was listed and the money turned over to Captain White. The scene of the meet was a hardware store on East 9th Street, which Belmont used as a front. Belmont's hardware was located in a small neighborhood shopping district. On Friday nights, the stores remained open until 9 p.m. Promptly at 8.30, Captain White and Floyd Ketchell pulled up in front of the store and went in. Ben and I waited in our car a half a block down the street. It was 8.35. There they are. They're coming out. Must have made the buy. Starting the car. Here they come. Watch for the skipper's signal, huh? Yeah. There it is. Let's go. Okay, pull over here. Come on. There's a clerk back there. You see Belmont? No. Can I help you? Is Mr. Belmont around? No, sir. He just stepped out. You sure? Yes, sir. He went out the back door not a minute ago. Bigham and Cassidy are out there, aren't they? Yeah, he won't go for it. Oh, there's Mr. Belmont. Mr. Belmont, these gentlemen want to see you. Running up the stairs to the mezzanine. Come on. All right, Belmont. Wait a minute. Watch that barrel. Look out. Pushing that barrel down the stairs. There he is. He's trying to reach that skylight. Belmont, get on. You'll never make it. He's slipping, Joe. Belmont! Come on. We didn't do that showcase any good. Yeah. He's through. Piece of that glass. Right through him. Yeah. It's a rough way to go. And... Yeah. At least narcotics didn't kill him. Didn't it? The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 10th, 1948, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. It's amazing how many long cigarette smokers are changing to Fatima. 
Here is the actual report. From coast to coast, Fatima has more than doubled its smokers. Yes, more and more smokers every day are discovering that Fatima is the best of all long cigarettes. Smokers find Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. They find that Fatima is extra mild because it's the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make it extra mild. Enjoy extra mild Fatima yourself. Best of all long cigarettes. Twelve members of Arthur Z. Belmont's narcotics gang were finally rounded up by federal, state, and local authorities. All twelve were tried and convicted of violating the Harrison Act and the State Narcotics Act. They received sentences as prescribed by law and are now serving their terms in state and federal penitentiaries. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all lawn cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet from Los Angeles. Be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman in Halls of Ivy tomorrow on NBC. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe. However, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. Star Wars Return of the Jedi Episode 2 Fast Friends. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there came a time of revolution, when rebels united to challenge a tyrannical empire. Now, the Empire is pressing hard to complete a second Death Star, a planet-destroying battle station intended to crush the Rebel Alliance once and for all. But on the desert planet of Tatooine, more immediate disaster looms for the key members of the Rebel leadership. In a grim fortress palace, Princess Leia, Han Solo, and Chewbacca the Wookiee are prisoners of the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt. The droids C-3PO and R2-D2, sent to Jabba as gifts by Luke Skywalker, are powerless to help. Though Leia has managed to thaw Han from the carbonite slab in which he was imprisoned, 
he has emerged blinded by hibernation sickness. And as the princess becomes a captive plaything of the evil Jabba, Han is being dragged to dungeons deep under the palace. care of himself, much less rescue us. He says he's a Jedi Knight? Oh, great. Leia tried to be a one princess rescue team, and now Jabba's got it. I'm out of it for a little while, and everybody's having delusions of grandeur. What do you mean Lando's here, too? Chewie, I need you. Don't start hallucinating on me. Okay, okay, don't get your fur all ruffled. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I love you too. Go easy with the hugs. Cracked ribs are a problem I can't do without right now. I'm all right, pal. I'm all right. What's that? Who's there? Boba Fett. I was just saying the stench couldn't get any worse, Fett. And then you show up to make a liar out of me. What are you doing down here? Jabba getting you scrubbing your floors in your spare time? Or have you worked up the guts to shoot it out while I'm still half frozen? Come on, bounty hunter. You didn't come here just to stare. I've beaten you, Solo. Beaten me? You? Vader captured us. Jabba's got us. All you did was fetch and carry. Tomorrow I'll collect another bounty, and you'll be dead. I bargained with Joppa before. Don't worry about me. What about you? You still Jabba's little errand boy? Watch your mouth, Solo. I risked my tail to get you here. Chewie, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. We struck a nerve. I bet he's not as cocky as he wants people to think. In fact, he sounds just a little nervous to me. Are you nervous, Fett? Worried that we'll get out of this hole and track you down? <laughs> I'm going to enjoy watching you die. You think a little thing like death's gonna slow us down? <laughs> you better be looking over your shoulder, bounty hunter, because sooner or later we'll find you! I'm gonna rip your helmet off with your head inside!
Parisian wouldn't last long in Jabba the Hutt's main audience chamber, Princess. Here, I'm merely Tamtel. Tamtel Screech, a humble guard from one of Jabba's sand skits. I see. Tamtel. Are you all right? Yes. This slave outfit isn't exactly warm. The chain pinches. The color changes. The old saying's right, Leia. Beauty can be a curse. So gallant. You'd flirt with your own executioner if she were a woman. Well, especially her. I might persuade her to botch the job. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid there's not much I can do for you. We don't dare risk another play until Luke gets here. We better make it soon. My dancing's not so good. If I have to perform for Jabba, I'm gonna end up in the rancor pit a lot faster than Ula did. I hope Luke knows what he's doing. Things are getting hairier than a Wookiee around here. and move aside. Let me by, I said. That's better. There's no need to raise the alarm. I can find my own way to Jabba's audience chamber. I know you to be Jabba's major domo, Bib Fortuna. I must speak to your master. You will take me to Jabba now. It will take Ujaba now. Good. You serve your master well. I saw the And you will be rewarded. Pachu, now you're trying. Master Jabba, Gabba no Pase, Luke Skywalker. Master Luke, oh, at last Master Luke has come to rescue me. Luke, Luke, watch yourself. Don't worry, Leia, I'm just here to make Jabba see reason. They're waiting your orders, a sublime Jabba. Preponderant Jabba gave specific orders not to admit Skywalker. I must be allowed to speak, Jabba. Jedi must be in Koei, Jabba. Jabba berates Bib Fortuna for a weak-minded fool. He says Skywalker is using an old Jedi mind trick. Jabba, you will bring me Captain Solo and the Wookiee. <laughs> the impregnable Jabba says, your Jedi mind powers will not work on me, boy. Nevertheless, Jabba, I'm taking Captain Solo and his friends. You can either profit by this or be destroyed, but I warn you not to underestimate my powers. The unassailable Jabba replies, there will be no bargain, young Jedi. I shall enjoy watching you die. 
often asks why you came to his home without a lightsaber with which to defend yourself. I hoped I wouldn't need weapons, Jabba, but a Jedi is never unarmed. <laughs> Master Luke, beware. You're, you're standing on a... <laughs> if you need to see me with a weapon, Jabba, will your guard's blaster do? Mm. I can call it from his hand to mine, like so! <laughs> Well done, Master Luke! Jabba, do I have to use this thing, or have you seen enough? Luke, there's another guard behind you! Get clear of him, Luke! You're standing on a trap door! Blocking the chute, I can't get back up that way. Where is your blaster, Master Luke? Lost it on the way down. I don't see it anywhere. Go, oh, sir. You must get out of the pit before the Rancor's cage door is open. Too late for that. You, guard, stand over here with me. Our only chance is to take the Rancor on together. Hit and run. Get back down here, the chute's blocked! You'll be cornered up there! Hurry, it's seen you! Hope that snack took the edge off your appetite, big fella. Guess not, huh? Luke, there's a club on that boulder behind you! Club? Big leg bone. Better than nothing, no, though. Where, sir? The Rancor is boxing you in! Yeah, no way to avoid him this time! Luke, don't let him seize you! Now that you've got me, what are you gonna do with me? Jammed in your crop! <laughs> Didn't care for it. Huh? Splendidly done, sir. You made him drop you. Luke, that door on the other side of the pit is your only way out. Maybe I can outflank him. There's no future in hanging around here. Stay low, Master Luke. Stay low. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Come on, door. Open for me, baby. No! The outer door's still locked! I'm trapped! Sir, can you drop the holding area portal? The controls are in a wall panel to your left! Big boy, you're between me and those controls. Sir, if you threw something, it could trigger the portal release. Can you drop the portal, Luke? Maybe. Maybe I can drop it like the biggest deadweight trap on Tatooine. Let's see. The skull of a previous dinner guest. This will do it. Sir, we can't see you. What's happening? One throw's all you're gonna get, Skywalker. Come on. A little closer, that's it. Just where I want you! slain the Rancor! Are you hurt? So far, so good, Leia. Jammer is most distraught. Oh my. He has ordered that Captain Solo and Chewbacca be brought before him to share in your punishment. I'm afraid he's highly incensed. Fine. That makes two of us. Quick shot, you flat-nosed, shit-headed goon. Yeah, just take the binders off us for two minutes. That's all we ask. Come on. Are you two all right? Yeah, fine. Right, Chewie? Except that somebody turned out the lights on me. I can't see a thing. 
So, here we are together again, huh? I just couldn't miss a party like this. How are we doing? Same as always. That dad, huh? Where's Leia? I'm here, Han. Thanks for trying to spring me, kid. You gave it your best. Um, his high exaltedness, the great Jabba the Hutt, has decreed that you are to be terminated immediately. Good. I hate long waits. You three will therefore be taken to the Dune Sea and cast into the pit of Carcoon, the nesting place of the all-powerful Sarlacc. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. In the belly of the great abomination, you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are slowly digested over a thousand years. No. And second thought, let's pass on it, huh? You should have bargained with me, Jabba. That's all this. this is the last mistake you'll ever make. <laughs> Jabba says, and so... I know. And so dies the last of the Jedi. It's been said before, Jabba. Jabba commands that the condemned be taken to the sand skiff, and that his sail barge be made ready for a voyage on the Dune Sea. Prepare a feast aboard Jabba's ship of the desert. Let great merriment attend the extermination of this, the last of the Jedi. Excuse me, sir. I, I wonder if you'd mind getting off my foot for just a moment. <laughs> Coming through there... With your permission, I'm terribly sorry. R2-D2. What are you doing here? Well, I can see you serving drinks. Festooned with beverage dispensers like a vending machine. Have they done to you? And look at me. The motion of this tail barge has quite upset my equilibrium sensors. I'm as sick as a tonton in a typhoon. Hm. I wish I had your confidence. All part of the plan. What plan? This is another of your fantasies, aren't you? Look, over in that sandskiff, our poor, brave master, bound and helpless, and Chewbacca and Captain Solo with him, all waiting to walk the plank. Sarlacc of the starboard bow, where? So that's the pit of Carcoon. Coming, O oh most festive Jabba. I fear the moment of termination is at hand. Wait! Where are you running off to this time? Take your position on deck. Artu, acting like a spy, will get you thrown down the Sarlax more too. I'll be right there, Master Jabba. Alas, and through the day, I'll be right there. there, Luke. I'm getting real tired of waiting. Coming up on the pit of Carcoon now, Han. I think my eyes are getting better. Instead of a big dark blur, I see a big light blur. There's nothing much to see. I used to live here, you know. Well, you're gonna die here, you know. Convenient. Just stick close to Chewie and Lando. I've taken care of everything. Oh, great. Those and Hey, lay off my partner. He'll go for Luke. 
careful, Lando. Don't draw their attention. Don't worry. Han's got the spotlight. Next one of you vegetable heads who touches this is gonna need prosthetics from the chin on down once we get our hands on you. Mario Pacala! All set, Lando? Ready, but look out for Boba Fett. He's been watching us from the sail barge. He senses something's up. I can handle him. Look, R2's in position on the deck. I don't like waiting to the last second to make our move. They won't free my wrist until I'm out on the plank over the Sarlacc. That's when Java's guard will be down. You have an awful lot riding on one little astromech droid. It's not the first time. Are we at the Sarlacc's nest? What do you see? A great big funnel lined with teeth and tentacles. Big enough to swallow this skiff whole. No cagolfin do I. Victims of the almighty Sarlacc, His Excellency hopes that you will die honorably. But should any of you wish to beg for mercy, the great Jabba the Hutt will now listen to your pleas. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you, you can tell that slimy piece of worm-ridden filth you'll get no such pleasure from us. Right, Chewie? Mm -mm. Jabba, this is your last chance. Free us or die. Jabba commands that the plank be extended and Skywalker moved into position. Tis a little chumpy off! Yes, Barada. Prisoner, hold still while I remove your bonds. This plan, Luke, it does involve us not getting eaten, doesn't it? Stay back with Chewie, Han, unless you want to walk the plank before I do. Hey, help yourself. Prisoner, step to the end of the plank. The redoubtable Jabba commands. Let Skywalker be cast into the Sarlacc. Give R2 the signal, Luke. Cut your way way east! Now or never, chum. R2? R2? Now! Heads up, Luke! Got it! What's going on, Lando? Luke's back aboard! R2's tossed him his lightsaber. I know that sound. Just Chewy heads are gonna roll now. Lando, grab your axe. Take the one in the bow. I'm on her. What's happening? You know, I'm still not getting a clear visual here. a little busy. Hey, Chewie says the barge is getting ready to fire on us with a pivot gun. Turn around, Chewie. Let's get those ropes off you. Luke, Boba Fett's firing a dead rocket pack. He'll be on us in a second. Let him come. That pivot gun's got us range. Lando! Lando's hanging from a line at the starboard rail. When I get your hands free, pull him back up while I take care of that gun. Yeah, anything. Just get these ropes on. And Chewie says watch for Boba Fett. Drop the lightsaber, farm boy, or I'll... And don't call me farm boy, bounty hunter. Incoming! Hit the deck! Chewie, where you hit? Talk to me. Try my capture cable on for size, Skywalker. <laughs> Even a lightsaber can't cut that alloy. Remains to be seen. Yes. I won't be a prisoner, you'll be a corpse. Hit the deck! What's going on? The cannon blast knocked out Boba Fett, but there's another sand skip coming our way. Lando! Hold up that rope, hon! I'll handle the other skip. Wait, wait, don't go! Skywalker, boarding party of one. Chewie! Yeah, don't move or you'll make that wound worse. I found a spear here. Just hold me in on Lando's rope. You're not still holding that Cloud City thing against me, are you, buddy? Ah, keep your boots on, Lando. I'm coming. Where, Chewie? More to the left? What? Bubba, back where? Back on his feet. Which way, Chewie? 
Sound off, did I get him? Where's Boba Fett? His jetpack went haywire and now he's down the Sarlacc's throat, but how could that? Sarlacc's sizing me up with the Sarlacc. Ah, save it, Chewie. Lando, can you reach the end of the spear? Not if you're poking my eye out. You are still sore at me, admit it. If I was, I'd be using the pointy end. Now grab hold. Lower it. I'm trying. Took out that pivot cannon, but they got the deck gun firing now. Oh, oh, oh. Grab my ankles, Chewie, I'm slipping. Good. Now hang on. Quit fooling around up there. Something's grabbing my foot. I think it's the Sarlacc's tentacle. Grab the spear. You almost got it. Lando, try again. Gently now. All right. Easy, Chewie. Chewie, pass me that gun. Lando, hang on. Hurry, give me the blaster. Got it. Okay, Lando, don't move. No, wait. I thought you were blind. It's all right, trust me. Aim a little higher. No, you're still too low. I don't need a consultant, chum. Now hold still. Pull away, Chewie! Pulls up! The deck gun stuck firing. I think Luke got it. Could we concentrate on me just a little longer? If I didn't know better, I'd say you were getting soft, Calrissian. Up you go! Look after Chewie. I'll get to the helm. Yeah, what about Boba Fett? He bounced off the side of the barge and went down the Sarlacc's gullet like a jet luge. He's finished. But was he dead? The way he hit that hull, his helmet was probably flattered in the Cloud City landing platform. Can't have survived. Well, I'm not leaving until I'm sure. Then again, I can be flexible. But what about the others? They'll be here. Stand by, bear down, and hang on! Half a victory can still become a defeat. Luke, Leia, and the droids have yet to escape the wrath and murderous minions of Jabba the Hutt. Even if they do, this triumph will mark only the opening skirmish of an epic final confrontation with the Empire. Ahead of them waits the planet-obliterating power of a new and even more terrifying Death Star. And beyond that, the raw evil of the dark side of the Force. Star Wars Return of the Jedi by Brian Daly. Based on characters and situations created by George Lucas and on the screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas. Additional material by John Whitman.
Featured in the cast were Anthony Daniels as C-3PO, Edward Asner as Jabba the Hutt, Ed Begley Jr. as Boba Fett, David Dukes as Bib Fortuna, Joshua Farden as Luke Skywalker, Ari Gross as Lando Calrissian, Martin Jarvis as Barada, Perry King as Han Solo, and Anne Sachs as Princess Leia. This is Ken Hiller. Star Wars Return of the Jedi was directed by John Madden and produced by Tom Vagley. The co-producer was Julie Hartley. Sound design for Lucasfilm by Ben Burt. Music by John Williams. Post-production was realized with assistance from Tom Mudge and John Scherf by Tom Vagley. Star Wars Return of the Jedi was produced by Highbridge Audio in association with Tom Vagley Productions and L.A. Theatre Works and with the cooperation of Lucasfilm Limited.
Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.